Commanders, Eagles, and Angels. Take a tour of a place. to welcome you to Taran Rama's Hard News on Friday night on BBS Radio Station 1. And we'd like to take a few moments to just get into that heart space, set the tone for the evening. So take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly, gently several times. I hear that calling drum. So gather with your guides and guardians, your angels, your healing teams, your spirit teams, your totems, your ancestors, whoever you like to journey with the kini drum with. And there's a council fire in the center. So let us gather around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do, make a circle around that council fire. As we call in the seven galactic directions in the Mayan tradition. from the east to have light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see things clearly.
May welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us, so that we may see everything from within.
day as 12-21-2012. So in, in going up through the, the different times that this day has occurred, they've been pretty profound. So <laughs> um, it's a powerful day today. And um, it's also a portal day. It's the last of the 10 galactic portal days that we had in a row in the H Uniol that we're in. So uh, we have the extra dimensionality and uh, we're working with that crystal tone of cooperation, dedication, universalized, our three descriptive words and the blue eagle creates vision and mind. So here's the mantra for today. I dedicate in order to create universalizing mind. I feel the output of vision with the crystal tone of cooperation. I am guided by the power of accomplishment. I am an activation portal. Enter me. So, <clears throat> powerful day today. Kid number 155, which is an 11. Going with those sevens today. Very powerful. Okay, so let's look at men a little bit more. It's a visionary aspect. It's about our commitment to service. The men is the eagle. So in English, this is the eagle. <laughs> so we're working with our commitment to service and moving consciousness to source and reconnecting with all creation with this energy. And we have these gifts of independence and that's our belief in ourselves. So let us let go of any feelings of despair or any dissociation and let go of the illusion of separateness. So <clears throat> the ego energy is committed to service and we express through our dreams and our vision for the people. And we work with in cooperation with others. So moving on to tomorrow is Saturday, 13 Keed, the Yellow Cosmic Warrior. And this this completes the wave of con that we're in, the seed wave. And um, this warrior energy is is in a warrior aspect, aspect, and it's about working with our trust in our journey and bringing awareness of right action. So we have these gifts of the warrior, that communication with the divine and that access to cosmic consciousness. So we let go of any limitation, any restriction, or any hesitation as we embrace these energies on Saturday, the yellow cosmic warrior. We complete this wave of con. So we got all those seeds planted and promise of change is upon us. So on Sunday, it's a one kaban. We begin a new wave. It's the red magnetic earth. That magnetic tone is the tone one, the beginning. And this uh, way of Kaban is about looking to navigate our future. So let's do that for the next 13 days starting on Saturday, on Sunday. As we embrace these energies on Sunday, we're working with a healing aspect and we're working with being the keeper of the earth and that awareness of earth's energy. So stay tuned in, get barefoot. Embrace the the gift of that access to planetary harmony because we are that balancing point. We work with our intuition and listen to what she needs and respond and let go of any separation. 
or any failure to read the signs or any dissociation. As we embrace these energies on Sunday and then moving along to Monday, it's a two etna of the white lunar mirror. And the mirror is another warrior aspect, and we work on our groundedness, on that wise use of honesty and self-understanding. And we embrace these gifts of of scrying the unseen and that fluidity and persistence that comes with the energy, that reflection in the mirror. So let's let go of any illusion of separateness, any fear or any abandonment or any illusion. As we embrace these energies on Monday and then on Tuesday is the two S knob. Um, that's Monday, excuse me. Monday is the two S knob. It's the white lunar mirror. So we're working with that moon energy for our guide. And moon. And on Tuesday is the three quark, the blue electric storm. And so it sounds like a lot of lightning <laughs> with the electric tone of three. The visionary aspect quark the storm is. So we're creating transformation for others. We're lighting clear thoughts with this energy and we embrace that the gifts of that possibility of freedom and the power of catalyzing. We do that with that electric tone of three and so it's <clears throat> a powerful day. So let's let go of any addiction to crisis or despair or fear or any illusion of separateness as we embrace these energies on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, it's the four how the yellow self-existing sun. And we complete this wave, this uh, unial, the eighth unial with a how. It's the, it's the last glyph or the zero, the 20 or the zero. It's the sun, a how is, and it's a healing aspect. And it's about rising to Christ consciousness and about striving towards wholeness. And it's about transmitting energy to others. So let's embrace these gifts. Possibility thinking, unconditional love, and that gift of the God self. We let go of any limitation or separation. We do this work on on Wednesday. And that self-existing tone of four is that structure. It's making it happen. With that <clears throat> how energy. And then on Thursday is the five and niche, the red overtone dragon. And that overtone is that activating tone. It's the harmonic as well. And uh niche is the dragon. It's the beginning. It's the first solar glyph. It has an artist aspect to it. So we're working with creation and self-dependence. And trust in the universe and clarity of mind with this energy. So embrace the gift of being that source of creation, the, the gift of the beginning. As we let go of any illusion of lack of support, let's embrace these energies. On Thursday, we're starting the ninth unial and this hob. <clears throat> and then on Friday, when we come back, it's a white rhythmic wind, a six each, eek, it's eek, I-K is spelled, and it's pronounced eek, um, so it's a rhythmic tone, so it's activating, and it's very, it's a visionary aspect, eek is, so we're working with co-creation of heaven on earth, we're working with truth and all matters, 
and remembering unity with our with spirit. So let's embrace the gifts of having that voice of spirit and and spirit working through us as we let go of any judgment of others or any secretiveness. We embrace these energies on Friday, and when we come back, we'll talk about it more next Friday. So I'd like to change my hat and talk a little bit about the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And each week we have uh, fees to pay for our services with DBS Radio. And what we're doing is we're magically taking off the $30 uh, a week that we put on because we missed the month of February because we know our abundance are coming. So we can just put that off and get that down to the nitty-gritty. We need $259 for the last week of June. We need $286.25 for the first week in July. So that's a total of $545.25 that are required for BBS Radio. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure by when, but this week sometime. That kind. So um, that needs to happen. And here's how we do it. Go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. Click on Radio Station 1. You'll see the schedule there for Radio Station 1. We have two programs, one at the on Thursdays at the 8 o'clock hour, and this is Central Time. You'll see uh, a night at the round table with the panel. And you can click on that icon there and take you directly to our account with BBS. So using your bank card, you can make that donation. And then for this program, the heart news on Friday nights with Tyra Mama is at the 8 o'clock hour on Friday. Okay, so we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. So let's take a look at what it is we need. We need um, <clears throat> fee, fee, cover our fees for BBS radio for last week of June and the beginning of first week of July. And these are two different amounts. The last week of June is $259. And first week of July is $286.25. So <clears throat> um, that's a total of $545.25 that we need to complete our commitment be up to date with our commitment with BBS Radio. And here's how you make a donation to our account at BBS Radio. You go to bbsradio.com, and we're on both Radio Station 1 and Radio Station 2. So click on Radio Station 1. You'll see the schedule there. You want to look at the 8 o'clock hour on Thursdays. You'll see the, a night at the roundtable with a panel. And you, as you click on that icon there, that'll take you directly to our account where you can make a donation using your bank card and any amount. So thank you for taking that action. And also on Radio Station 1 is the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama. And you'll find that listed at the 8 o'clock hour, and these are central time. Um, so you click on that icon, that takes you to our account where you can make that donation. And then on Saturdays, we have a program on Radio Station 2, beginning at the 3.30 hour. And it is the true history, history of the Sarah, our galactic origins with Tyron Rama. And uh, as you see that on the schedule, you click on that icon, the same as the others. So 
that takes you to our account where you can make a donation there. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for your attendance here, and we're grateful for your participation as well. Lots of gratitude. We're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they have a couple of bills due this week. They have a gas and electric bill, and they total $137 altogether. One's 120 and the other's 17 So they're in pretty good shape this week for those bills. Um, and they also need a couple hundred dollars for their living expenses. And uh, so here's how we make a donation to Rama and Tara. And you want to find our link to PayPal, and you'll find that by going to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. There on the home page, you click on that menu grid, and near the bottom of the list that drops down, you'll see a donate link at near the bottom of that list. I think it's section, second to last. You click on that, donate, and that takes you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And uh, you can make that donation there in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. Action. You can also ac access the friends and family option by using Lama's email. There in that email address for Lama at that site is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949 at hotmail.com. So as you're able to put in that <clears throat> that email friends option, and that just eliminates the commercial charges and your money goes further that way. So lots of gratitude. Either way is perfect. We are grateful for all your contributions and all the way you show up in your mind. So we also have a GoFundMe <clears throat> account, <clears throat> and you can access, access that from the same address, the rainbowroundtable.net. We'll have the link on there, but I'll tell you what it is. It's gofundme.com forward slash Rama. Um, to pay for car repairs and to buy a new a new used car or used car, and you can just put start putting that in and it'll show up. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's for raising money for Rama to get a new used car, and we're looking for eight thousand dollars to do that. So thank you for your generosity again. Thank you for your participation. And we're so grateful for you. Um, so there you go. That's what's going on. And what else? Oh, yeah. As you're sending something to PayPal, email Rama and let them know what you sent. And that email address is Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999 at Comcast.net. Moran999 at Comcast.net. And also, if you need it, the mailing address is Ron D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. That's Post Office Box 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. 87567 is the zip. I'll say it again. Post Office Box 280 Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. <clears throat> okay, so there you have it, all the information. Um, 
So 13 thankies and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick. And it's got bats and cats. <laughs> and it's got lions and tigers and bears and unicorns and little people and magical beasts and dragons and... Um, oh, yeah, all the men and and the dwarves and everything, everybody's there. So, um, <laughs> I'm catching this talking stick, greeting Tara and Rama. There's fireworks involved, so be careful. Here comes the talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. Uh, it's a wild day in the neighborhood. Like we said, for every uh, single day, there's no dull or boring things going on. <laughs> Happy 777. That's a big deal, everyone. It is huge. And I love it that Bernie said that so many years ago. He said that in 2007. Yeah. Yeah, and I took the time to ask Rama to print out the, uh, uh, what was that called again, from 1943? Philadelphia Experiment. The Philadelphia Experiment, because this is the year for it to happen. It happens every 40 years. Um, I think it's been canceled. No, it's not a bad thing. Oh, okay. When what happened in 1943 in the well, maybe I should read a little bit of this. Mm. Uh, let's see what time is it? Oh, it's 16 minutes long. We're going to play a 16-minute piece. It's like. Um, did you print out the Dr. Greer blurb? Yeah, I did earlier. You did. Papers. I gotta find it here. <laughs> we barely get something, and then something else happens. Okay. Um. Well, gotta... let me just read a a very brief interview. Just to refresh people, okay? So this is what it okay. says. Rama, uh, I wrote down what you said, too, didn't I? Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. I will read that. Hmm. <coughs> First. <coughs> today, Rama went, he said, I went and sat in the plasma field today. At 10.46 a.m. this morning, the plasma field uh, said to me, Greetings, Lord Rama. I said, Greetings, Commander. And Rama doesn't have a screw list. The plasma field is totally sentient. Sentient. He's just coming in a different form. Yes, a living entity. A living entity. And we all can do this. We can all communicate. And it's a high-technology living entity. So anyway, 
the plasma field showed me um, our son, Saul, aligned with Sirius, aligned with the Sirius system, with the binary. And we ought to remind people that's what they say right now, but there's three sons. There are actually three sons uh, in Sirius. Sirius A, Sirius B, and Sirius C. We talked about that about, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, many of Mother's Peshat uh, folks are from Sirius A, B, and C. <clears throat> okay, so the plasma field showed, for all practical purposes, okay not to talk about the third one right now. I mean, this is already an education, right? <clears throat> and I think in the infinite wisdom of the plasma field, he just reverberated and what, what people can cross-check because that's what they're saying. So <coughs> people don't go bonkers, you know, enough mm. bonkers going on. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so we were saying here, let me take a drink of water. Excuse me. I got a frog in my throat. <clears throat> okay, the plasma field showed me our sun saw aligned with Sirius and it showed me the binary system of Sirius directly over the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau. Now, this is in addition to the Pleiades are directly over the Giza Pyramid Plateau as well. So that's a double situation going on at the moment. Um, and the pyramids were glowing with a soft blue light. And the Syrian constellation is blue. And the Pleiadian constellation is blue. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about Archangel Michael Sapphire Blue. Yeah. And this little car that's doing its best to keep uh, Rama in the shuttlecraft there is Sapphire Blue. All right. Um, and blue is the divine feminine. Yeah, it's the divine feminine. The ruby ray. That's interesting because Archangel Michael is on a feminine first ray. <clears throat> and on the sixth ray, Lady Nada, a female, is ruby red, which is the masculine energy. You know, it's, you might say ruby magenta ray. And it's very vibrant. And you might say that's the divine feminine like mother going Rrr! with the situation. Okay. And, and that's 16 minutes, so I got two minutes, right? And the pyramids were glowing with that soft blue light. Then the plasma field said to me, 
explored round. The Giza Plateau is getting an upgrade. Very soon, the treasures underneath will be revealed. There is an entire city of light under there, and we mm-hmm. play a lot of things about that. And that city of light was built many thousands of years ago. So it contains a pretty strong history of all that was going on for thousands well, of years. It is directly connected to Sirius and Pleiades and Orion. Oh, that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. <laughs> As Bucky Fuller has always said, triangles hold their shape. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> see you in the light of the most radiant one. Satnam, namaste, blaze the violet fire. Okay, let me just read. What time is it now? 7.43.44. Okay, I'll just read a paragraph or two here. Uh, this is called Chapter 10 of the Philadelphia Experiment and Ascension. This has always been for the sake of the ascension process. This started in 1943. The next time it was in 1983. And one of those gentlemen that <clears throat> were catapulted off of that USS, I don't remember the name Eldridge. of it. Eldridge. Eldridge. Was catap- they were both catapulted off of the Eldridge, and they were taken all the way to Montauk, which is on that island off of Long New York. Island. On Long Island. And I forgot who they met, but... Al Bielek. Al Bielek was one of them, and the other guy, I too, that was yeah. The effects of the Philadelphia experiment can demonstrate the fact that at least partial knowledge of the global grid was available to the insiders already. Back in 43. The Philadelphia experiment, as many of us already know, was a case where the United States apparently dematerialized an entire ship, the USS Eldridge, at the port of Norfolk, Virginia transported it up to Penn's landing area near Philadelphia mm-hmm. and then brought it back to Norfolk again in 1943. The total distance of the trip exceeded 400 miles. That can't be. That's a lot more miles between that. That's thousands of miles. I don't really know. This is weird. Again, well, I don't know. Again, there are many different sources that confirm the reality of this happening. Happened. And it is the the lack of study on behalf of most skeptics that would allow them to brush it aside. The most recent reports from Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso, oh yeah, reprinted on Dr. Stephen Greer's C. SETI website, and it indicates it, it, it indicate that almost everything in the description of the Philadelphia experiment was true. Okay, let's play this now so we can hear it all. This is, what does it say? This is a Dr. Greer. I'm exposing the whole thing before they can stop it. He's got protection, everybody. 
Here we go. It's an epic vision mini projector. Up to 150 inches. Bigger and better, baby. Where the extreme secrecy Eisenhower warned us about. Whoops. The worst of that has come to fruition. And frankly, no one is reporting that. Certainly not the mainstream news media. There are sociopaths who are in super secret projects that don't want us to have it. I'm working now to try to bring this information and more equally importantly, the technologies that are behind these uh, spacecraft and, and things that are being reported on CNN now, because what the public isn't being told is that we have in fact figured out how those objects operate. And that would give us an entirely new and advanced civilization where we would not need fossil fuels oil or gas or coal or nuclear power so it's a very big story most people think the secrecy around this is because the government has just been incompetent that's not true that narrative is a false narrative the true narrative is that uh i will quote from a top secret memo released uh during uh the past few decades but it was dated 1951 and it stated that the subject was the most classified matter in the u.s government exceeding the classification of the development of the hydrogen bomb, I'm quoting. So a lot of people think this is about aliens. I said, no, it's not about ETs. It's about humans. And how are humans gonna get out of the conundrum we're in, which is a very serious problem, and move forward as a civilization instead of sliding backwards. The public thinks that, you know, God is in heaven and everything is in orbit and everything is, we actually are are living in a, a situation where the extreme secrecy Eisenhower warned us about, the worst of that has come to fruition. And frankly, no one is reporting that, certainly not the mainstream news media. This is not just the United States, by the way. The same situation exists in Great Britain, Australia. I've I've met with ministers of defense in, in most of the Five Eyes countries, which are, of course, you know, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Great Britain, U.S. I think this is the part of, of the story that people have a hard time in a sense, getting their minds around because we all grew up with our history lessons and our uh, civics lessons and the president is the commander in chief and blah, blah, blah. In reality, the emperor has no clothes and uh, there are classified projects that go on, unfortunately, that are not supervised by the president or the Congress. And actually the CIA director's wife, who at the time was chief operating officer of the National Academy of Sciences said, uh, to, to me during our two or three hour meeting uh, with the CI director, she turned to me, she said, how are these civilizations communicating across the vastness of interstellar space? Because the speed of light is too slow. And, and for people who aren't scientists on your viewership, let me explain. At the speed of light, to go 1% of the way across our own galaxy, the Milky Way, would take, it, which is a thousand light years, which is the distance light goes at 186,000 miles every second for a year. That's one light year. A thousand light years is 1% of the way across our galaxy, which is one galaxy amongst trillions. But at the speed of light for you to even communicate and say, hey, how are you doing? And to answer back, that would be the time since the birth of Christ, 2000 years for that transmission to happen with what you and I are using right now on electromagnetic signals. So we knew as scientists, uh, and, and that there had to be something else that these civilizations were using. And what we discovered was that they have very, high, very sophisticated electronics 
And this is, of course, what Elon Musk at uh, Neuralink, he has a company called Neuralink, is, is working on, that interface with directed thought. Now, this is probably where I've lost half your audience. And they're going, what? What we had discovered is that, in fact, these civilizations that are from various star systems have technologies that Elon Musk could only dream about. In other words, they very accurately transmit and send and receive directed quanta of thought instead of an electromagnetic signal per se through what's called field consciousness and conscious the consciousness field is i mean it sounds very buddhist or vedic but the consciousness field is actually not bound by space time space or time and because of that there's no limit on the speed of it it's instantaneous because of what's called non-locality in physics is a bit obtuse and, and technical to get into probably here but what non-locality means is that it's not based in the speed the linear speed of light or the linear speed of sound or what have you it's instantaneous because of the nature of conscious field the field of consciousness this is the to me the most interesting stuff uh because this whole science of consciousness is actually the big science for the next 1000 years but we have to catch up to the last 70 to 100 years of energy and propulsion technologies that have been hidden away so we don't destroy the biosphere. Why are we still using jet engines from the 30s, 40s, 50s, or rockets from the 40s? I'm saying because the alternative would completely terminate the petrodollar system and oil and gas and coal and nuclear power and public utilities. All of it is redundant, completely unnecessary. Tesla uh, actually had a prototype car that was pulling energy out of the uh, environment. Uh, and he didn't really understand what that was. Uh, we do now. It's called zero-point energy or quantum vacuum energy. Uh, but basically, just for people who are non-scientific, if you visualize a coffee cup, the amount of space inside that cup has enough energy to boil off all the oceans of the planet and its potential. And it's called the zero-point energy field. It's been quantified. It was in academic papers in the 50s, so-called Professor Casimir, Casimir effect. But Tesla stumbled across this back way back, early 20s, I believe, maybe before. But J.P. Morgan said, look, if we can't put a meter on it, we don't want it. So Tesla died a very bitter man. I always joke that Elon Musk doesn't have a Tesla that he's manufacturing. He has a Musk. And the reason I say that, sort of jokingly, is that a true Tesla would never have to be plugged into the grid. It would be pulling energy out of this energy, this state of energy that's around us through very high voltage systems. They're called VHV, very high voltage systems that create a, a, an opening into that energy field. And Tesla did enough experimentation with these sort of very high voltage systems at certain uh, resonant frequencies, cycles per second, hertz, that he broke that he broke into that area of science, but no one wanted it to come out. Now, you know, fast forward 100 years later, we're still burning gasoline in engines and rocket fuel and jets. And that's a tragedy for the human race, but it's a tragedy for the planet. And it's a tragedy for our children and my uh, nine grandchildren. So my concern is, you know, the future. Uh, the past is the past, but we have to figure out how to catch up and sort of back to the future. We, you know, <laughs> it's like the, that cartoon show, The Jetsons, when they showed people flying around in these cars, when that cartoon was made, those technologies were already developed. They're not going to say, 
A, we know what these are. B, we know where they come from. C, we figured out how they work. Let me give you a date that's going to probably curl your toes. October 1954. That was the date we mastered gravity control. Now, what do I mean by gravity control? What I mean by gravity control are high voltage systems that cause an object to what looks like levitate or move the way that vehicle that you saw in that video released by the Pentagon this week. And they confirmed, yes, this is real footage. And they released three different videos. What they didn't say, because the people releasing it don't know this because of the compartmentalization, is that there is an unacknowledged compartmented program that began studying this in the 40s and 50s, and by 1954 had figured out how those things operate. Let us know if there's aliens, because this is the only thing I really want to know. I, I want to know what's going on. Would you ever open up Roswell and let us know what's really going on? You know, the president of the United States since Eisenhower has not been read into, which is military term for briefed, on what are called unacknowledged special access projects. There are millions and millions of people that want to go there, that want to see it. I won't talk to you about what I know about it, but it's very interesting. I don't believe he has particularly more information than some of the others, like Ronald Reagan had quite a bit of information on the um, extraterrestrial and UFO subject, but the information was cherry picked. With a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. So you're saying you may declassify, oh. you'll, you'll, you'll take it? Well, I'll, I'll have to think about that one. So I know what is happening with the current president is that the people around him are ones that are selected to provide a certain type of information. And it is usually cherry picked intelligence so that the president will respond to the subject the way they want them to, these classified operatives. So people have to understand the nature of an unacknowledged special access project. And most people would assume, it would be fair to say, that because you're the President of the United States, you have an all-access pass to all these compartmented operations that are very classified. Uh, but they do not. And that is one of the urban... is that the president knows everything or can find out about everything. What I have found is that depending on the presidency, and I briefed and put a briefing together for every president since Bill Clinton and briefed personally his CIA director. And what I found is, for example, when Bill Clinton inquired about this subject, he was denied any information. His CIA director was tasked with looking into it. He was denied information. So. I was invited to come up to Washington, even though I'm an emergency doctor, but I had collected a large archive on this issue and briefed the director of the CIA. And that was when I discovered that the nature of the secrecy is so compartmented that, you know, some people say it's above top secret. Well, there is no classification above top secret. What it is, is the compartment you're in. And the ones that are special access projects are very restricted. And the ones that are unacknowledged special access projects are off the books. And only the people in that sealed compartment know about what they're doing. And that is how it's structured. And that architecture structure evolved from the 50s forward. And uh, so no president since Eisenhower has had full access to these projects, which is, of course, illegal and unconstitutional, which is why my group, SeriousDisclosure.com, we're 
gathering together people to change that. But I think the current president has access to a point. But he need you know, any of anyone like that is in a bubble. So, you know, when you enter the White House, I mean, say you're a businessman or a peanut farmer like Jimmy Carter or whatever, you get into the White House and the people that are surrounding in the national security apparatus, most of them don't know about this issue. The ones that are appointed and come and go every few years. But there's a permanent bureaucracy, a few of whom would be read into or briefed on the subject. But those people will only tell the president what they think the president will respond to in a favorable way for them, strategically. For example, there's been all this information coming out recently about um, UFOs being chased by our Navy pilots off the coast of California, et cetera, probably on CNN, New York Times. Those objects are most likely Lockheed Martin top secret skunk works object. A close encounter spotted by a U.S. Air Force pilot off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida. There's a, a, a new insider who's just come forward and he's been saying that he was told that the Tic Tac UFOs were these hybrid craft that were capable of traveling through the ocean at uh, 500 miles an hour and in the air at 24,000 miles an hour and escaping Earth's velocity if they needed to. And that these were craft that were actually being made uh, for the U.S. Air Force. So these were Air Force secret space program vehicles being produced at this secretive facility in Palmdale, California called Plan 42, which has long been known to be a, a major production site for highly classified craft that the Air Force has been having various contractors work on and assembled for them. Lockheed Martin Skunk Works actually relocated from Burbank, California, to this facility, Plant 42, up in Palmdale. So Plant 42 is where you actually have these Tic Tac craft actually being produced for the U.S. Air Force. So that was one of the most amazing things to us, or at least to me, was that these objects would be out there all day, uh, and the speeds that they're exhibiting, as well as the flight characteristics. Uh, there's no platform or really energy source that I'm aware of that can allow something to stay in the air uh, as long as these objects were. According to this whistleblower, he's been encouraged to come forward to, to let the public know that these craft are secret Air Force craft. Space. going to be a lot of things happening in space. Because space is the world's newest warfighting domain. Amid grave threats to our national security, American superiority in space is absolutely vital. Which has just been set up early 2020. Uh, space Force has had its logo approved. It has its new commander. It's got its uh, chief enlisted officer approved. And they're, and they're working out the details of uh, personnel requirements, uniforms, and so forth. So that's all being set up. Cape Canaveral Air Force Station will soon officially get a new name. It will be called Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. Patrick Air Force Base will also get the new Space Force moniker. It's to reflect the new Space Force branch of the military. So that's all being set up. 
But in the meantime, we have the craft, some of the craft, like these tic-tac craft, which are about 46 feet long, that are, that are, in, that are shaped like a tic-tac, so they're cylindrical, that these are going to be one of the vehicles that are eventually going to be released. And basically the Air Force or Space Force is going to make it known that this is part of their apparatus or part of their arsenal for outer space operations. Everybody's asking the biggest question in the world. Are we alone? That is strange. That is really weird. Do we really need the government to tell us? That's, I've never seen that. For thousands of years, and to present day, there's evidence of extraterrestrial craft that we don't know of. There's one simple hearing hack anyone can use to improve their hearing almost overnight. Is it over? Just about. Okay. Um, I'm going to let it go. Okay. BBS saying it's time's up. I know we're past time. I didn't think there was anybody after us, but let's, uh, Rama, give the phone number. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay. We'll see you there, everybody, and we'll have a little chat on the conference call. And so... Thank you, and BBS Radio, thank you. Um, Usually it doesn't matter, so uh, tonight it seems to matter. So namaste, and we'll see you there, everybody. Namaste.
precious heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. On July 4th in the United States of America, we celebrate Independence Day. Every year on that day, millions of people focus on the principles that this country was founded on. Those principles reflect oneness, liberty, justice, freedom, victory, equality, and prosperity. Even though the citizens of America are very polarized at this time and have very different opinions about what those principles mean and how to apply them in our lives, in the realms of illumined truth, there is no confusion. There isn't any confusion about these principles reflected in the divine consciousness of each person's I am presence either. One of the profound truths that is coming to the fore in our new solar reality is that the solar light we are receiving now is infinitely more powerful than any light we have ever experienced. This light transcends by leaps and bounds our fragmented and fear-based thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. This truth gives us a glimpse of just how we have now been empowered and how we have been able to greatly expand our ability to add to the light of the world in even the most traumatic moments of chaos and confusion. Usually when something negative happens in the outer world, it draws the attention of the masses of humanity. Unfortunately, our habitual reflex response is normally shock, fear, confusion, and often anger. What the beings of light want us to understand is that the focused attention of the masses of humanity creates a collective cup of consciousness. Whatever humanity is thinking and feeling flows through that cup of consciousness and affects every person on earth. The company of heaven wants us to know that during this tumultuous and often challenging time, if you and I will avoid that reflex response and instead of flooding the planet with negative thoughts and feelings, we develop the habitual response of instantaneously invoking the light of God into the situation, we have the ability to make a tremendous difference during even the most tumultuous outer world events. At this time, as millions of people are focusing on the challenging things going on in the various governments of the world, a collective consciousness of humanity has been formed. Regardless of the circumstances, you and I have the ability to invoke the light of God through this collective cup of humanity's consciousness and to transmute 
through the power of the new solar frequencies of the violet flame, anything that is not of the light. With the attention of millions of Americans focusing on oneness, liberty, justice, freedom, victory, equality, and prosperity this day, we are being asked by the company of heaven to empower the patterns for divine government in every country in the world. Divine government is a heart-based government that is formed of the I am presence, by the I am presence, and for the I am presence of every person on earth. The beings of light who are associated with helping humanity to establish the patterns of divine government on our fifth dimensional crystalline solar new earth are Saint Germain and Lady Portia, the keepers of the new solar violet flame. El Moria and Lady Miriam, the exponents of God's will and divine government. Archangel Michael and Lady Faith and their legions of power and protection. Mighty Astraea, the Elohim of purity. And the majestic goddesses of liberty, justice, freedom, victory, glory, and oneness. All of these selfless representatives of our Father Mother God are now standing in readiness to assist us with the empowerment of divine government. And we begin. I am my I am presence and I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. As one breath, one voice, one heartbeat, and one energy, vibration, and consciousness of pure divine love, we invoke our Father Mother God and the great beings of light associated with co-creating divine government on this blessed planet. We also invoke the mighty archangels and the ascended masters guarding the evolutions of earth. Now, the goddess of liberty takes her strategic position at the cardinal point to the north. Goddess of Divine Justice takes her position at the cardinal point to the east. The Goddess of Freedom takes her position at the cardinal point to the south. And the Goddess of Victory takes her position at the cardinal point to the west. Joining these powerful beings of light are the goddess of glory, 
who takes her position in the center of the earth and the goddess of oneness who takes her position high in the atmosphere of earth. Joining her in the atmosphere of earth are the silent watchers who are holding the immaculate concept for every government in every country of the world. And the mighty guardians who are assisting humanity in myriad ways as we empower divine government on planet Earth. Beloved beings of light, we ask that you now blaze the most intensified frequencies of divine will, divine love, and divine enlightenment from the very heart of our Father Mother God through the heart flame of every person who is now or ever will be in the future involved with the governments of earth in any way. Awaken every one of these people to the profound opportunity and the awesome responsibility they have during this cosmic moment. Enlighten them to the profound truth that it is time for divine government to manifest now. In the name, love, wisdom, power, and authority of the beloved presence of God, I am blazing in my heart and the hearts of all humanity. And by the power of light's victory, now made manifest on earth, we invoke Saint Germain and Lady Portia, Elohim, Astraea, and Archangel Michael, and your legions of power and protection. Beloved ones, come forth now. Gather up every electron of precious life energy that is being expended by humanity this day. Instantaneously transmute this energy, cause, core, effect, record, and memory back into light. Blaze the new solar violet flame with the power and might of a thousand suns in through and around this life energy until every atomic and subatomic particle and wave is reflecting the immaculate concept of its original divine potential. Beloved ones, weave this purified life energy into the collective cup of humanity's consciousness so that every electron of precious life energy expended by humanity this holy day will be used to expand the patterns of perfection for divine government 
in our new solar reality on Mother Earth. Archangel Michael, we ask that you now direct your angels of power and protection to descend into Washington, D.C. and the surrounding suburban areas. With their swords of blue flame, cut free, cut free, cut free every force of government that is not of the light. Encapsulate these energies in your ring past knot of God's first cause of perfection. Now, mighty Estrella, we ask that you direct your legions of the cosmic circle of white lightning to purify, purify, purify every electron of this energy. Beloved Archangel Michael and Mighty Estrella, now raise every electron of this energy into the arms of divine grace as our Father, Mother, God encodes the patterns of divine government into every particle and wave of this life energy. Archangel Michael and Mighty Estrella, we ask that you now direct your legions to expand this divine service into the governments of every state, city, town, and homestead in the United States of America. Encapsulate these energies in your ring past knot of God's first cause of perfection and your cosmic circles of white lightning. Cut free, cut free, cut free and purify, purify, purify every force of government that is not of the light. Archangel Michael and Mighty Estrella now raise every electron of this energy into the arms of divine grace as our Father Mother God encode the patterns of divine government into every particle and wave of this life energy. Beloved ones, now expand this divine service into the governments in every country, nation, city, province, town, and hamlet on earth. Encapsulate these energies in your ring past knot of God's first cause of perfection and your cosmic circle of white lightning. Cut free, cut free, cut free and purify, purify, purify every force of government that is not of the light.
beloved Archangel Michael and mighty Estrella, now raise every electron of this energy into the arms of divine grace as our Father, Mother, God encode the patterns of divine government into every particle and wave of this life energy. Beloved legions of light, now in the full authority of God's will on earth, we command that every location where negative negativity was removed from the governments of the world, a template for God's comprehensive divine love Unity consciousness and divine government has been permanently established now and forever. We now seal this invocation in the divine will and comprehensive divine love of our Father Mother God. And we decree through all levels of consciousness. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. And so it is, beloved I am, Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am that I am. God bless you, dear one. I look forward to being with you next week. with JJ's special 777 Syrian Gateway Ascension Message. My goal with this episode is to bring through any information that might help you better prepare for this special time, as well as a channeled message from Goddess Isis, who is a Syrian herself. Hello, dear beautiful souls. Welcome, welcome. I am JJ. If you are new, it is such an honor to co-create with you. And you might think it sounds a little funny that I'm saying that being that you're listening to this recording, but I honestly feel all of the listeners when I'm recording, I can really tune into your energy and we're co-creating. We really truly are. This episode is very special because I have been preparing for the 777 gateway ever since the beginning, actually the 66 portal. So I don't know how many of you have been following me for a while, but if you take a look at my podcast from 66 until now, you will see that I frequently refer to the 777 gateway. And the really incredible thing is that we are finally here 
And I am now tuning into what's really around the bend as we open ourselves to the energies of this portal. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about what the 777 gateway means. First of all, it obviously takes place on July 7th, according to the Gregorian calendar, which turns into a really cool number, 77. This is a time that occurs every year. But the special thing about this year is that the two plus the two plus the three of 2023 also equals seven, turning this portal into a triple seven. And if you've heard me talk about the number three and all multiples of three, you know it's important. And I've had several guides come in and channel messages about it as well. In order to give you a good foundation for what we're headed into with this Syrian gateway, I'd like to just set the stage with a little place to bring through any information that might help you better prepare for this special time, as well as a channeled message from Goddess Isis, who is a Syrian herself. Hello, dear beautiful souls. Welcome, welcome. I am JJ. If you are new, it is such an honor to co-create with you. And you might think it sounds a little funny that I'm saying that being that you're listening to this recording, but I honestly feel all of the listeners when I'm recording, I can really tune into your energy and we're co-creating. We really truly are. This episode is very special because I have been preparing for the 777 gateway ever since the beginning, actually the 66 portal. So I don't know how many of you have been following me for a while, but if you take a look at my podcast from 66 until now, you will see that I frequently refer to the 777 gateway. And the really incredible thing is that we are finally here And I am now tuning into what's really around the bend as we open ourselves to the energies of this portal. Now, let me explain to you a little bit about what the 777 gateway means. First of all, it obviously takes place on July 7th, according to the Gregorian calendar, which turns into a really cool number, 77. This is a time that occurs every year. But the special thing about this year is that the two plus the two plus the three of 2023 also equals seven, turning this portal into a triple seven. And if you've heard me talk about the number three and all multiples of three, you know it's important. And I've had several guides come in and channel messages about it as well. In order to give you a good foundation for what we're headed into with this Syrian gateway, I'd like to just set the stage with a little bit of information. I have found this information on the internet. I will give you the website. It's called foreverconscious.com. And I just thought it would be good to run through some of the basics about Sirius. So every week during the first week of July, this sacred gateway of energy is activated between Earth and the star Sirius, which is actually a binary star. We'll talk about that in a second. But essentially what people consider it to be is a time of heightened vibrations and spiritual advancements. Now, Sirius has been revered by many ancient cultures and is considered our spiritual sun. If you have ever watched the documentary or the show Ancient Apocalypse, you will see that in that show they talk about many different monoliths and 
different archaeology has shown that Sirius was very important to ancient peoples. So Sirius actually shines 23 times brighter than our own sun. And for that reason is our spiritual sun. It helps to activate and shift us to higher levels of spiritual awareness. It's almost like our sun, right, of our solar system warms our body and Sirius warms our soul. And even though it is so far away from our planet, it has a very important... Welcome back, everyone. Um, There's been some little meddling going on, and we think it was the Skype, so we're going to, for the sake of time, we're going to maybe reserve doing our little show here for tomorrow, and we're going to bring Mother through. So let's blaze the violet fire. And see what mother has to say about this situation. I think she's a specialist on this journey, so here we go. Greetings, mother. In the light of the most radiant one. In the office of the Christ. And only in the office of the Christ, we invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the Violet Flame. Tonight we ask for divine intervention of the highest order and send more love to the shenanigan makers. And we do know that we all volunteer to come here to do the same, to send us all, send these characters off with love. So I'm, I'm sure Mother has a few words for this moment in time. So greetings, Mother. <sighs> greetings, children of Ra. Indeed. Oh, I just want to say this is the fourth. One, two, three. This is the fifth night that in our neighborhood they're putting fireworks off. They're having a grand old time, but it's, it is what it is. Okay, your mother, so I guess you might want to project over the noise. <laughs> yes, folks are still in that mood to shoot things off. Yes. It's quite a moment here with the energies and this 777 portal. A lot is going on. And it's about, like you say, the energies going ever so much higher. Our wayward children that is the Godzilla in the room. <laughs> Let's 
just say it is an ancient story and certainly at this time mm. it would be in the best interest for all the parties concerned Sit down, shut up, and meditate. <laughs> and like Aurora Ray says, 11 minutes. <coughs> Things can happen in 11 minutes to shift so many realities. We can't even describe it. It's the multiverse and we are in the multiverse. <sighs> there are so many infinite possibilities, probabilities that are unfolding with this current storyline. Hmm. They're all good. Our wayward children would like to continue steering the Earth's direction in the old timeline. It's over. present moment whatever moment this is we can say there are so many helping hands here in this dimension to bring things to a higher level of peace and hope. There are many irons in the fire to twist the stories. All the messages are saying focus on love. It is the answers that are unfolding at this present time. <sighs> Many things are being brought to the hmm, being brought up discussion cousin we can say 
we are in a most auspicious moment with these energies that are unfolding at this present time. Everybody, please blaze the violet fire for yours truly, Tyra. I've been in excruciating pain for about three days now and gets to the point where I don't know what to do. Yes. Kind of going through it right now. Um, the energies coming in at the present time. Mm. Only increasing the ascension symptoms and it is we can say the events that are unfolding each day are about our wayward children going down. And it is quite fast, even though you may think it's slow. <laughs> I know, and we keep on saying, hurry up. <laughs> yes, it is going at quantum light speed. Oh, yeah. Like what you heard in that little clip from Dr. Greer. It's instantaneous. What's unfolding? Everything is happening in present moment, whatever that moment tends to be. <laughs> and it is quite a challenge to be in the present moment. <laughs> when things are jumping out of your skin, so to speak. Keep going. We can say that the light that's been coming in from the sun is most wonderful in many ways 
as the fractal frequencies that are shifting our present dimensions. It can be seen through so many different ways, eyes, that have to do with how the protons, electrons, neutrons, stuff that is the building blocks of life, a present reality, whatever it is, the energies keep getting higher, and it is a good thing at the same moment. What's unfolding is what it is. Gotta send more love to all the situations we don't have a whole lot of words. It is about the fact times up. Our children know it. Every day more is unveiled about how we never needed to drop, draw any oil from the mother. Everything we need is in the quantum field. We are part of the quantum field. Reach out. It is the force. It will speak with you, show you many things, many concepts. <coughs> this is what Tesla was speaking about. That Everybody instantaneously can connect with the quantum field. And someone in Beta Centauri can talk to us on Earth and someone else in Atlas Centauri. And then someone from the Pleiades can join in as well. It's don't need these funny things called cell phones. The quantum field is instant. Your thoughts are what take you there. Like when you see the stargates open and you just 
go instantaneously across the galaxy it is quite simple yet quite complex gotta know where you're gonna end up it quantum field generator gravitational field generator they do have these technologies right now anomalies are opening up all the time as we are in this period as the sun has <coughs> activated the present story how the portals open all of the families get to join in at this moment it is quite awesome to behold everything that's going on is a reflection of the crystallization polarization of what's happening The crystals, the higher frequencies are speaking to us. All the kingdoms, queendoms of all the realms, from the tiniest elementals to the mightiest archangels are speaking to us at this time. And it is about how we shift our consciousness in an instant. It's quite amazing to behold, to be here, experience this, in many ways. What we are learning is how we get to be part of the intergalactic confederation and it's happening before our eyes. How this completes itself Like we've said, we're from your future, which is our past. And we can't give dates, but the time is now. As ridiculous as it sounds, it is so. <laughs>
How are you doing over there? I'm working on it. It hurts pretty bad, Mother. Yes. So, Mother. <coughs> yes. Now that you ask, you know, we were talking about that tone, that word soon. And Jen asked the question because 20 years ago he asked the question. And, uh, or somebody did, but he was there listening and, uh, he, I, you said that souls will go void of course. And, uh, you mean their, their actual soul will be voided. And I said, well, well, let's ask mother about that tonight. And I, I, what I said is that, that was then and this is now. And now there's been a response, you know, like sleepy light workers kind of woke up and said, Oh, if I don't do something, this is gonna get worse. And so what's your what do you say, mother, about now? What's the word? We could say that things have shifted greatly since then. So you're saying that people are getting with the program? Yes. Oh, goody, goody. And it is happening at quantum light speed very fast. Mm-hmm. That is why so many are coming forward, the whistleblowers, whether it is what Julian Assange has Showing the world, or what the folks that Dr. Greer interviewed about what they have seen interacting with the various <coughs> intergalactic families. And it's a very ancient story. And love is the answer. Before things went awry and some of the angelic folks decided hmm a little excitement to the eons of peace and tranquility ah whatever the case of might have been or might not have been it is about experience and souls make choices in this infinite cosmic story free will choice within diversity all the colors of the rainbow and then some the it has been said by the elders of 
Turtle Island. The Rainbow Nation would bring the new age. That's what's unfolding. Generation Z, the baby boomers, along with the rainbow crystal diamond children. It's unfolding in this present moment. The tolerance for how to solve issues of a difference of opinion. <laughs> Think about this one. Difference of opinion. It's a when you are in a star system that is four hundred sixty five million light years from Earth in an instant. We could have a conversation. And let's say that planet in that system, that's in hard to conceive so many light years away. Yet in that one instant that being on that planet, can have a conversation with us here and we could discuss differences of opinion um, about life, the universe and everything. How do you like your tea? <laughs> Trying to Bring some light humor to such a wild story that unfolding and we have seen civilizations rise and fall like sand. And it is part of this cycle that is occurring right now on a grand scale. This galactic cycle that has been spoken about how So many civilizations are sending the message to the folks here. 
as we want to work with each other. Hmm. Let's start with some basics, like no violence and how we can interact with each other, whether we are blue or green or purple or yellow. <laughs> or maybe we don't have a body. We're just a ball of plasma energy from the sun. And we can still walk and talk and move along with you. And, hmm, how we interact, move, have our being. This is the quandaries and mysteries of how we as a galactic family can learn new ways of how to interact with each other. Crystals are light, water, seemingly frozen in time. Yet, when you send the force through the crystals, the energy activates just like a lightsaber. It can be used for healing, can be used to uncreate stuff, yet we don't need to go there. It's such a magical time to be alive with all the folks here in various shapes and forms. This is how we bring about a shift in the awareness of peace on this planet at this moment. It's, um, let's say, ninety seconds to midnight, and the captain has things well in hand. Yet your Looney Tunes on the media want to push the stories for war because it puts that green stuff in their pockets, which makes no sense. It's talk talking about nonsense and they create wealth out of it. <laughs> yeah, Mother. Yes. What Don said when he talked to us when we got on there and said this is what's going on and 
we told them that there was that bleep, bleep, and then there was another sound that was a little different, and then that went down three times in a row. Yes. And then, uh, then he said, oh, that might be Skype. That's definitely might be Skype that's having the issue. And then I said, you know, the dark's going down real fast right now. And they want to make life really miserable for everybody. And he said, yeah, well, we're going to give them a run for their money. It is. is are you of like-mindedness, Mother? You know. <laughs> so what are you doing to give them a run, run for their money? Sending them more love, right? Yes, it's dead. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, but just tell us again. Uh, well, wrap it up, Mother. I'll get up and we can do the next thing. Okay. Just tell everybody what you want to say. Complete. To bring this to a full circle. At this present moment, use the 7-7 portal and the energies of our twin sons, triple sons of Sirius, Saul, all the rest of the folks. Sons are living beings. They can talk. They can move. They have their ways of being. Planets are living beings. Moons. This is all part of the mechanics of how we can interact with each other and create heaven right here right now all it takes is a little faith mm-hmm. it's that simple it moves mountains it moves star systems hope healing on planet earth heaven on planet earth <laughs> okay mother thank you and let's amp up the run for the money side of the things okay oh yes I've had a long, long enough time to play havoc and murder and mayhem and whatever else they can think of doing oh we can say in short order what the sun is doing with this 11 year cycle of more active solar flares than in past years what your scientists are not telling you is the sun is a portal Mm -hmm. just like all the other suns are portals and To put it simply, Archangel Michael and the legions upon legions of heaven are here because 
this is the best story ever, right here. The grand drama. It's about us waking up like mm -hmm. Dr. Greer says. You want peace on earth? starts here. All the teachers, masters that have been passing through this way in the last <laughs> 50, 60, some odd years as you measure space-time, Seventy years or so. It's gotta go into the heart. Greetings in the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. Autumnize Samayov. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. We've got the power, right, Rama? Yes. Remember, you have it, you say, Now let's see. <laughs> okay, moment, Tito, everybody. This will only take a moment. Where did you go, Rama? <coughs> you were yawning a whole lot when Mother was here. Yeah, the energies are... I, I have no way to describe them except to just say what's pouring in. Um, I just remember... First being at Taos Mountain, then Mount Kailash, and then uh, Lady Master Athena's ship, and then Soltek's ship, and bouncing around. And the energies are just very high, and it's about staying centered and not going anywhere but that centeredness. And... You know what I'm going to say, Rama, about what you didn't do today. You didn't take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's you true. said I will be good, didn't you? 
Yes, it is in this time. Every day we must lay down at a certain point and take a cat nap. Maybe longer. Yeah. Yeah. You see what... You see what Tigger does on top of that cat scratcher every afternoon. Yeah. She's out like a light, and I don't care what's going on. Nothing bothers her. That's right. Cats take a nap whenever they think they need it, and they do it a lot. Yeah. All right. Enough of that. Anything else you want to tell us, Rama? Just a place of violet fire with these energies, because... Mother's children are hot for some kind of fiasco to, you know... These naughty ones. Yeah, putting fake bombs at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, blaming each other to create more stuff. Oh, my God. And the thing is that that's not the, 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 the least of it, because they've got tactical nukes. On the border yeah, of Ukraine and Belarus. And, I mean, Captain that wouldn't Astor, be there if they didn't tend to use it. Captain Astor is not making any jokes about this. And we might be seeing Starfleet Academy a lot sooner than I'm talking. That's right. Yeah. All right. This is Democracy Now! Amy has plenty to say tonight, so let's listen with our cat ears and see what it is all about. Here we go. From New York, this is Democracy Now! <laughs> the Supreme Court guts affirmative action, ruling Harvard and the University of North Carolina's programs considering race and college admissions are unconstitutional, but allows military academies to continue using affirmative action. We'll get response from the NAACP, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Mariana Costa, and Professor Janelle Wong, who says affirmative I action is wrong one. But the myth survives. Today, the Supreme Court issues two more decisions. Oh, boy, what a night. (laughs) Where the heck did the right one go? It's the energies, the electrons, they're doing stuff. Yeah, we we played it in the afternoon. We we recorded it in the afternoon, but where the heck is it? That says 6.30. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where the heck is it? You might have to play it from there, Ronald. You're going to have to um, pull it up from the computer. That's all I can say. Okay. Just a minute. Sorry, everybody. This is a wild day in the neighborhood tonight, for sure. Oh. Um, I'm sorry we didn't get to play that 777 story with JJ because she said a whole lot about the portal. Yeah, I mean, I should play that now. 
<laughs> I don't know. You don't know, please. Yeah. No, let's just do Amy. Okay. Uh, Momentito. Um, get near. Is that the right place? Is that the right yeah. one? Yeah. All right, here we go. There's about 1,500 lobbyists working for fossil fuel companies in the U.S. that are also working for them, some of the most progressive institutions in America, top universities, city governments, uh, museums, art galleries, green groups, uh, you name it. They, they, they're working for them. They have shared lobbyists. The past three days have been the hottest on earth. Some say in 100,000 years. We'll speak with Guardian reporter Oliver Millman about double agents, fossil fuel lobbyists work for U.S. groups trying to fight climate crisis. And we'll talk to Bill McKibben, who says the sun that's cooking us could cool us too. Then to Guatemala, where election officials have rejected an attempt by the ruling business and political elite to overturn results from the first round of a presidential election where the progressive anti-corruption candidate came in second and will now be in the race a runoff. We will fight corruption because if we do not fight corruption, we will not achieve development and fight poverty. We'll go to Guatemala City for the latest. And we'll speak with author Shadi Hamid about lessons for the next Arab Spring. I argue in the piece that the Obama administration gave what amounted to a green light to General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to proceed with the military coup of July 3rd, 2013. And we are marking this week the 10th anniversary of that coup, which in some ways marks the end of the Arab Spring as we know it. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The world's average surface temperature has soared to its highest level ever recorded, surpassing record levels of heat measured just a day earlier and the day before that. This week's string of record-shattering hottest days came as climate scientists warned last month was the hottest June ever recorded, with 2023 on track to become the hottest year in human history. Meanwhile, a new report in the journal Nature Communications warns changing weather patterns and extreme heat due to the climate crisis will exacerbate the global food crisis with lower crop yields anticipated in the near future. We'll have more on the climate crisis after headlines with Guardian reporter Oliver Millman and environmentalist Bill McKibben. 
In the United Kingdom, members of the Climate Action Group Extinction Rebellion shut down operations at the nation's largest coal mine Wednesday in a nonviolent civil disobedience action. The open pit mine in South Wales had been operating without a license. Elsewhere in the UK, climate protesters disrupted play at the Wimbledon tennis tournament twice Wednesday, throwing orange confetti on the court and displaying T-shirts reading, Just Stop Oil. On Thursday, youth climate activists disrupted a speech by UK Labour Party leader Keir Starmer, accusing him of U-turning on his pledge to fund a transition away from fossil fuels. Young people Which want side are the Labour Party on? We are on the side of economic growth. Will you just let me please get on with it? Thank you very much. We have already. Will you just let me finish this, and I'll come and talk to you about it. Thank you very much. We are trying to speak to you about it, but you haven't replied to us, Kim. Look, we need a green new deal right now. In Sweden, Greta Thunberg and other youth climate activists have been charged with disobeying the police for peacefully blocking oil tankers at a port in Malmo last month. If convicted, the protesters face fines and up to six months in prison. The Biden administration is announcing it will ship cluster munitions to Ukraine as part of a Pentagon military aid package. The weapons are banned under the Convention on Cluster Munitions, an international treaty signed by more than 120 countries, though not by Russia, Ukraine or the United States. Investigators with Human Rights Watch have documented how cluster bombs used by Russia and Ukraine have repeatedly killed and injured civilians. The group warns unexploded bomblets left behind after cluster attacks will continue to pose a risk to civilians for years to come. Former senior U.S. national security officials have held secret talks with prominent Russians believed to be close to the Kremlin with the aim of laying the groundwork for negotiations to end the war in Ukraine. That's according to a report by NBC News citing half a dozen unnamed sources who were reportedly briefed on the discussions. The State Department said the Biden administration did not sanction the discussions and denied encouraging them. Israel's military fired artillery shells on a pair of villages in southern Lebanon Thursday after two missiles were fired toward Israel. There have been no reports of injuries in the exchange of fire, which came after Israel carried out one of its largest military operations in decades in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. An Israeli court has acquitted a police officer over the shooting death of an unarmed autistic Palestinian man in occupied East Jerusalem. Iyad El-Hak was a 32-year-old special needs student who attended and worked at a school near where he was shot dead in Jerusalem's old city. His killing in May 2020 drew comparisons to the police killing of George Floyd in the United States. On Thursday, a judge threw out the charges against the officer whose name was not made public, calling the killing an honest mistake. Iyad's mother, Rana al said family was surprised by the ruling. It's injustice. I never saw injustice like this against a young man like my son. My son is buried in the cemetery and the killer is free and can travel around. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers shot and killed at least two Palestinian men during an early morning raid today in the city of Nablus. At least three Palestinians were wounded in the assault. Separately, Israeli forces chased down and killed a Palestinian man after he allegedly shot and killed a soldier protecting an illegal settlement near Nablus. At the United Nations, Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned the massive two-day assault on Janine by Israel earlier this week that killed at least 12 Palestinians and left more than 100 
injured. Guterres called Israel's airstrikes during the raid inconsistent with the conduct of law enforcement operations and said that as the occupying power, Israel has responsibility to ensure that the civilian population is protected. Members of the UN Security Council, including the United States, have voiced support for deploying a multinational armed force to Haiti. Thursday's meeting follows a trip to Haiti by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who appealed for the international community to act now on Haiti. Predatory gangs are using kidnappings and sexual violence as weapons to terrorize entire communities. And I've heard appalling accounts of women and girls being gang raped and of people being burned alive. We are not calling for a military or political mission of the United Nations. We are calling for a robust security force deployed by member states to work hand in hand with the Asian National Police to defeat and dismantle the gangs and restore security across the country. Haitian officials have requested the international force, but many in Haiti have opposed such a presence due to the disastrous history of UN and foreign interventions in Haiti. This all comes as Haiti today marks two years since the assassination of the Haitian president, Moïse. A Haitian government watchdog released a letter yesterday slamming the lack of accountability and the stalled investigation of the killing, reinforcing a culture of impunity and corruption that's endangered all Haitians. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing for a four-day trip aimed at easing tensions between the U.S. and China. Yellen's meeting with the Chinese Premier Li Chang today. Yellen has criticized China's punitive actions and obstacles imposed on U.S. companies, including export controls on minerals and denying market access. The U.S. has imposed its own restrictions on China, focusing on its technology trade with the U.S. This is Secretary Yellen. The U.S. seeks healthy economic competition with China. But healthy economic competition, where both sides benefit, is only sustainable if that competition is fair. Climate change envoy John Kerry is set to visit China next week to resume talks on the climate crisis. China and the U.S. are the world's two biggest polluters, as well as the two largest investors in clean energy. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approved a drug to slow the cognitive decline of patients with mild dementia and other symptoms of early Alzheimer's disease. Approval of the intravenously administered drug Lakembi clears the way for Medicare and other health insurers to begin covering the extremely expensive treatment. The U.S. Geological Survey has found that nearly half the country's tap water likely contains at least one type of PFAS, also known as forever chemicals. PFAS are found in everyday products such as personal care items, clothing, cleaning products, as well as food. They've been linked to a host of environmental and health problems, including certain kinds of cancer. Studies have shown nearly all Americans have detectable levels of PFAS in their blood. Over 6,000 conservative congregations of the United Methodist Church, about one-fifth of the total number in the U.S., are preparing to leave the denomination over rifts about the role of the LGBTQIA people in the church. This comes amidst growing defiance of the church's policies prohibiting same-sex marriage and the ordination of LGBTQ people.
more conservative members decided to launch the separate global Methodist church as states like Texas, Alabama, Kentucky, and Ohio have seen the largest number of departures. Progressive congregations are expected to propose new church laws that allow same-sex marriage and the ordination of LGBTQ people in 2024. And Nepal's Supreme Court has issued a temporary order greenlighting the registration of same-sex marriages for the first time. LGBTQIA activists and couples across Nepal celebrated the decision. So far, we are very happy. If it becomes permanent, we will be even happier. We hope the permanent marriage regulation order will come as soon as possible. Things for us will be the same as for other men and women. That would be ideal. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The world's average surface temperature has soared to its highest level ever recorded, surpassing record levels of heat measured just one day earlier and the day before that. This week's string of record-shattering hottest days came as climate scientists warned last month was the hottest June ever recorded, with 2023 on track to become the hottest year in human history. Meanwhile, a new report in the journal Nature Communications warns changing weather patterns and extreme heat due to the climate crisis will exacerbate the global food crisis with lower crop yields anticipated in the near future. All of this has added new urgency for broad government action to address the climate crisis, but much of it has been thwarted by fossil fuel lobbyists, which we'll talk more about in a minute with The Guardian reporter Oliver Millman. But we begin with author and environmentalist Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org and founder of the organization Third Act, whose new substack piece is headlined, No Human Has Ever Seen It Hotter. But the sun that's cooking us could cool us, too. His latest piece for The New Yorker is headlined, To Save the Planet, Should We Really Be Moving Slower? The Degrowth Movement Makes a Comeback. Bill, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. So the three hottest days in human history, some say in 100,000 years, talk about what's happening and what needs to happen. Well, good morning, Amy. On, on the one hand... There's nothing surprising about what's happening. It's what you and I have been talking about for literally decades now. Uh, scientists have told us that this is we pour carbon into the atmosphere is the inevitable result. But we are seeing in 2023 that result come to the fore. We've seen truly startling things. Uh, it, it's now a reasonable chance that this will turn out to be the hottest year ever recorded We've already had, as you say, the hottest days, the hottest week. We just had the hottest June. If you think it's bad here, really have some place in your heart for the people living in spots that are beyond hot and and unlikely to be air conditioned. Last night in parts of Algeria, cities in Algeria, the nighttime temperature stayed above 103 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the hottest nighttime temp minimums ever recorded in Africa. So all around the world, we're seeing remarkable, remarkable things going on. And this is just as the El Nino uh, Pacific warming begins to kick into gear. The next 18 months are going to be a 
a time of chaos and havoc as we go to temperatures that no human has ever seen, no society and no infrastructure has ever endured. We don't know precisely what will happen, but we can predict that it's going to be very, very hard. Um, and, and we can predict really, too, I think, that this is the last of these moments we're going to have when the world is summoned to action by events and when there's still time to make at least some difference in the question of how hot it ultimately gets. Can you talk about the degrowth movement, Bill? Well, as you know, there's um, uh, ever since the limits to growth in 1972, I guess, there's been this critique that the world can't keep growing as it has been, uh, that it'll eventually lead to uh, ecological collapse that eventually seems to be coming true. Um, but it is a very strange moment because on the other hand, we understand that we need to increase very, very quickly the amount of green energy and clean energy that we're producing. And that requires growing at least one thing, solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and so on. So my piece for the New Yorker was an attempt to square that circle to say, are there ways that we could use this moment of extraordinary um, need for technological change to also produce some social change along the way to build a different kind of world? Uh, we need to make the technological change. And I think we also need to make some really serious social change as we do it towards a different kind of planet. The good news is that um, we're beginning to see, beginning to see the payoff from some of that technological change. You know, Texas was the center of the heat wave in the U.S. so far this year. This heat dome settled over Texas and the numbers were astounding. There were cities setting new high temperature records 10 days in a row. But the grid did not collapse in Texas and it did not collapse. One analyst after another is telling us because of there's a lot of solar power on that grid, four times more than there was in just four or five years ago. And that power, uh, and not surprisingly, solar panels do well in heat waves. Uh, that power has been enough to keep Texas uh, going. Of course, and as Oliver will make the case in a minute, the irony is that the Texas legislature is busy trying to help the fossil fuel industry and close down its renewable industry. But so far, it's renewables that are doing the job there. And believe me, utilities around the country are starting to watch because they understand that not only is this power cheap, uh, it's truly critical in the world that we're headed into now. I mean, we've been getting reports of hikers and um, tourists who've died of the heat. A woman died in Arizona's Grand Canyon National Park after falling unconscious during an eight-mile hike in over 100-degree Fahrenheit weather. A man found dead in car with two flat tires, Death Valley National Park. I think the recorded temperature the day before was like 126 degrees. You had a, a teen and his dad in Texas. Um, and... But what about workers around the world as well? Well, I mean, oh, the, the, the scale of what we're doing is astonishing. And you're very right to point that out. 
One of the things that the International Labor Organization has told us is that our ability to do work outdoors is already something like 10% degraded uh, uh, and that it'll be 30%, 40% by mid-century. That is the number of hours that people can be out working. There are lots of reports. China's just come through or is coming through an extraordinary heat wave. And Mexico has been through a heat wave that makes the one in Texas look small by comparison. Uh, people waking up at, at, you know, agricultural laborers waking up at 4 a.m. to get done what they can before it gets too hot to be outside. Uh, we're changing the world in deeply fundamental ways. We're not going to be able to stop. We can't stop global warming at this point. All we can do is try to stop it short of the place where it cuts civilizations off at the knees. And that will require nimbleness and speed that we've really never seen before. As you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us we need to cut emissions in half by 2030 to have any chance of meeting those targets that you reported on in Paris just eight years ago. By my watch, 2030 is Six years and five months away. So the, the need to move fast has never been clearer, I think. Bill McKibben, does expanding renewable energy necessarily lead to a reduction in fossil fuels? Recent data show fossil fuels accounted for 82 percent of worldwide energy supply last year, even as record wind and solar came online. We're going to find out in the next couple of years, and it, it has to. Uh, uh, renewable energy is right now at this takeoff point. It's suddenly becoming substantial, and it has to reduce fossil fuel use if it's to matter. That's why people were so upset when President Biden, who's done so much to sponsor renewable energy, also started approving things like the Willow Oil Project in Alaska or the MVP pipeline in Appalachia or this new string of LNG ports along the Gulf Coast. Um, the, the politicians are getting better at saying yes to renewable energy, but they're no better at saying no to fossil fuel than they were before. And that's because of the extraordinary political power of that industry. They're clearly willing to break the planet. It's why we need more activists and more people out pushing. At Third Act, for instance, we're training up thousands of people to take on the public utility commissions in state after state after state. Uh, uh, these are incredibly important institutions, the public utility commissions. They set rates and help determine what facilities the utilities are allowed to build, but they're traditionally been protected by their incredible boringness, and they've been captured in almost every case by the utilities that they're supposed to regulate. So we need lots of people out pushing in places like that, as well as out in the streets or at Wimbledon or wherever it is. If you're uh, uh, if you're an older person like me, come join us at Third Act and see what we can do. Uh, finally, Bill, uh, it's beautiful to hear the birds singing behind you in Middlebury, Vermont. Can you talk about the effect of this global heat wave, the hottest earth ever on the flora and fauna of the world? It comes at the worst possible time. Um, we already know that because of lots of things, climate change, but also habitat destruction and pesticides and things, the number of animals on this planet is something like 70% lower than it was when I was born. 
And now we're being pushed and pushed and pushed. I think in the next few weeks, we're going to see devastating reports from around, especially the oceans of the planet. Um, it, it, it looks like something like 40% of the Earth's seas are now going through a, what the oceanographers call marine heat waves. That means widespread bleaching of coral. Uh, uh, you know, we forget sometimes we call the planet Earth, but we, if we were being honest, we'd probably call it ocean because <laughs> that's 70% of the planet's surface. And, and the damage there is extraordinary. Sea temperatures are not just a little bit higher than they've ever been before. They're, they're not off the charts. They're off the wall. The, the chart is tacked too. Um, so it's going to be a brutal period, not just for human beings. And that brutality is going to increase unless we get our act together now. Bill McKibben, thanks so much for being with us. Co-founder of 350.org, founder of Third Act. We'll link to your Substack piece. No human has ever seen it hotter, but the sun that's cooking us could cool us too. And your New Yorker piece to save the planet. Should we really be moving slower? The degrowth movement makes a comeback. Double agents. Fossil fuel lobbyists work for U.S. groups trying to fight climate crisis. That's the title of a damning new investigation by The Guardian that reveals how more than 1,500 lobbyists are working for fossil fuel companies. At the same time, they're representing hundreds of cities, universities, big tech companies, and even environmental groups that claim they're taking steps to address the climate crisis. The report is based on a new database by the group F- that was published online this week. For more, we're joined by The Guardian's environmental reporter, Oliver Millman, who is also author of the book, The Insect Crisis. Oliver, welcome back to Democracy Now! Explain what you found and this contradiction of fossil fuel lobbyists representing the fossil fuel companies, but also, for example, environmental groups. Hi there, Amy. Good to be with you. Yes, as you, as you mentioned, there are about 1,500 at least. Uh, lobbyists across the US uh, who do state level lobbying for fossil fuel companies such as Exxon, Shell, BP and so on. But they also work for some of the most progressive minded institutions in the country. Um, you know, not only kind of cities such as Los Angeles, uh, Philadelphia, um, uh, even Baltimore, uh, which is a city that is suing big oil because of its climate damages. Baltimore shares a lobbyist with Exxon, which is one of the defendants in that case, quite extraordinarily. Um, but also a, a range of other institutions, um, museums, art galleries, a new museum in New York, uh, the Los Angeles uh, County Art Museum in, in LA, um, big tech, the kind of big tech companies that have said they will do so much to address the climate crisis. Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, all share lobbyists with with big oil, um, Apple shares a shares a lobbyist with the Coke Industries um, network. That's a, a group of companies that has done so much to delay and deny the science of climate change, as well as stymie action to kind of cut emissions. Uh, and there's also more than more than 150 universities um, that share lobbyists with uh, big oil and gas, including um, uh, many universities that are divested themselves from fossil fuels. Uh, which is an effort that, that Bill, uh, who, who was speaking before, has helped kind of spearhead. There's universities such as 
University of Washington, Syracuse University, um, uh, California State University, that have all looked to divest themselves of fossil fuels and yet have lobbyists who work on other days of the week on pushing fossil fuel interests. So this is the extraordinary kind of overlap. So just to be very clear, Oliver, you have a guy yeah. go lobbying at the state level one day saying you got to um, deregulate for Exxon because I represent Exxon, he says. And the next day saying you got to shut down these fossil fuel companies because he represents uh, an environmental group. The yes, same guy. That- yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, th- this data set doesn't show exactly what these lobbyists are lobbying on in terms of particular topics, but we know who their clients are and we know where the overlaps are. So yes, uh, you, you, you work for Exxon on Monday to, to kind of push the interests of Exxon to keep drilling for <clears throat> oil and gas. And then on Tuesday, you're working for, um, uh, the city of Baltimore that's suing Exxon, so let- uh, on the damages. Let's talk about Baltimore. Um, in the state of Maryland, F minus reveals, as you said, many nonprofit groups, municipal county governments are sharing lobbyists with the fossil fuel industry, including Baltimore and Johns Hopkins University, one of the leading institutions in the research of climate change. The database reveals, quote, the trustees of Johns Hopkins voted to divest from coal in December 2017, stating a public and explicit stance will help propel the weight of public opinion toward accelerating the transition away from coal as a source of electric power around the globe. Despite this stance, lobbyist listings for 2022-23 show Johns Hopkins sharing one or more Maryland lobbyists with two companies with substantial coal interests, NRG Energy and Wholesome Participation, if that's how it's pronounced, in addition to five companies with upstream and midstream oil and gas operations. And in Florida, the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital shared a lobbyist with coal plant operator Teco Energy. Um, if you can go more into that, and also a point you make in the piece is that they are then sharing the strategy say, of an environmental group or university that's just divested with the oil companies because they represent one on Monday and the other on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, that's the great danger. I mean, one of the one of the justifications of this is that, well, you know, you want the best lobbyists if you're a particular institution, including even an environmental group. And there are several environmental groups that share lobbyists with big oil. Uh, a bit like a lawyer, you could be a lawyer that represents, um, you know, Donald Trump on one day and Planned Parenthood on another day. And you have this kind of professionalism that means that you'd have a divide on that. But um, the practical nature of that, of, of this, is, of course, is that there's this sensitive information you don't really want to sh- be shared with the other side, particularly if you're actively campaigning against the other side or suing them in court, as several cities are. So there is that that danger of a com- conflict of interest there. Um, and and as you mentioned with uh, Johns Hopkins, there, there is this um, slightly opaque nature of divestment from many universities where they said that they will rid their endowments of um, fossil fuels and yet they, students have been pushing for kind of greater details and clarity about what that means in terms of distance themselves from fossil fuel industry at large. And uh, I spoke to several kind of student groups who said they're very disheartened that their universities are continuing to work with those links to the fossil fuel industry, even though they say they've divested. It's clear that big oil isn't toxic. It isn't radioactive in terms of its uh, reputation as the as perhaps the tobacco industry may be. Um, all these progressive institutions are very happy to work with um, those aligned with big oil um, if they feel that they can get something out of that. 
And can you talk about big tech, Oliver? Yeah, of course. I mean, that, I mean, it may not surprise some people who are a little cynical about big tech's um, uh, pronouncements on things like climate change, but it's still quite extraordinary that you have these large companies that have vowed to do so much to uh, address the climate crisis. Apple, for example, is um, uh, vowed to kind of um, uh, decarbonize its entire supply chain by 2030, and yet it shares lobbyists with the Coke network. Um, Amazon uh, employs fossil fuel-aligned lobbyists in 27 different states. Um, Microsoft lobbyist also works for Exxon on other days of the week. Um, Google has uh, a lobbyist with seven different uh, fossil fuel clients. I mean, the list goes on and on. This is an industry that has been called out several times for um, under-delivering on its promises on, on the climate crisis. And it's clear that the, uh, the wielding of political power and influence is far more important to them than staying um, true to any kind of ideals of distancing themselves fully from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I want to quickly get to insurance uh, industry. You tweeted, some of these overlaps are particularly jarring. Uh, State Farm, which is halting new policies in California due to wildfires, has fossil fuel aligned lobbyists in 18 states. Top ski resorts and their melting snow also pay for oil and gas lobbyists. Um, knowing this information, can you talk about the significance of State Farm halting new housing insurance policies in California and employing lobbyists who also work for carbon polluters? Yeah, I mean, some of this doesn't seem just to be a kind of conflict of interest. It seems to be going actively against the interests of the, the companies that are paying these lobbyists. I mean, State Farm, like you say, they uh, announced in May that they'll be taking no more homeowner policies in in California due to what they call the kind of growing catastrophic risk of wildfires. And yet they employ these fossil fuel lobbyists all across the U.S. It seems to be actively working against their own financial interests. They're paying people to um, create pollute, uh, helping other companies create the pollution that they then have to pay for when it comes to insurance premiums due to wildfires and floods and other huge uh, climate disasters. Uh, and, and ski resorts, too, really seemed quite surprising to me. I was, I was very kind of interested to see that you have these top, top uh, ski resorts like Vale and Jackson Hole um, that have lobbyists that also work for fossil fuel interests, given the existential risk that um, uh, global heating causes to uh, the ski industry due to melting snow and, and, and glacier loss and so on. So, um, yeah, it's really quite surprising to see these kind of overlaps. And um, until now, we didn't know about it. There wasn't this transparency until now. Now, now it's been revealed and maybe uh, maybe some action might be taken. Finally, Oliver Millman, what are the universities from Bard to Johns Hopkins um, to University of Washington, etc., and the environmental groups saying about these shared fossil fuel lobbyists? Uh, there's two kind of main defenses. One is, you know, it's quite normal for lobbyists to have lots of different uh, clients. This is just the way the business is done, which is a kind of um, maybe kind of a, a, a kind of cynical and grubby way of looking at politics, but probably a realistic one. Um, the other one is that it's it's actually beneficial. Some of the um, green groups told me, well, if you have a fossil fuel lobbyist, um, they will help connect you to politicians you wouldn't normally talk to. They, you know, um, a Republican politician might not take your call if you're the Environmental Defence Fund, but um, if you have a fossil fuel lobbyist, uh, who they do speak to, you can gain access through them. It's a way of gaining access to those in power, which, again, you might see as a kind of 
a cynical way of looking at things, but um, is, is the way things are done in, in state capitals and, uh, of course, in Washington, D.C. too. Oliver Millman, environmental reporter at The Guardian, whose new investigation is headlined, Double Agents, Fossil Fuel Lobbyists Work for U.S. Groups Trying to Fight Climate Crisis. We'll link to the piece at democracynow.org. Next up, we go to Guatemala City, where election officials have rejected an attempt by the ruling business and political elite to overturn results from the first round of a presidential election where the progressive anti-corruption candidate came in second in a shock to almost all the race leading to an August 20th runoff. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn to major developments in Guatemala, where election officials have rejected an attempt by the ruling business and political elite of Guatemala to overturn the results of last month's first round of the presidential election. The race is heading to a runoff August 20th between the former first lady, Sandra Torres, and the progressive anti-corruption candidate, Bernardo Arevalo, who's also a member of Guatemala's Congress. The review of ballots came after the party of Sandra Torres, who's been accused of corruption, um, and her allies challenged the results of June's first round of elections. A spokesperson for Guatemala's electoral court said in an interview with Reuters Thursday, the final results of the first round election have not changed after the review and will officially be released next week. But the elite sector still refuse to accept the results as fear mounts they'll continue to interfere in the election leading up to the runoff. Protests erupted in Guatemala City earlier this week after the Constitutional Court suspended the certification of the results, which put Bernardo Arevalo of the Semilla Party, which Semilla means seed, in second place, sending him to that presidential runoff against Sandra Torres, the frontrunner. Rights groups denounced the court's decision as anti-democratic. This is an attorney for the Semilla Party. 
Lo que tenemos claro es que la consigna del partido. What is clear is that the slogan of the official party, supported by parties close to the ruling party, is to manage to open as many boxes as possible that will allow them to declare the electoral process null and void so that the election can be repeated. Bernardo Arevalo is the son of the former Guatemalan president, Juan Jose Arevalo, Guatemala's first democratically elected president. He pushed for revolutionary social reforms when he was in office from 45 to 51. Bernardo Arevalo spoke to supporters in Guatemala City after the first round of the election led to his surprise second place finish. We will fight corruption because if we do not fight corruption, we will not achieve development and fight poverty. The persecution of the press is a symptom of the deterioration that this country is suffering under this authoritarian regime. We will fight persecution of the press and harassment of anyone of their ideas or dissent. We will guarantee freedom of expression, freedom of the press, and freedom of protest. For more, we go to Guatemala City, where we're joined by Samuel Perez Alvarez, Guatemalan Congress member, who is Secretary General of the Progressive Guatemalan Political Party, Semilla. He was elected to Guatemala's Congress in 2020. Welcome to Democracy Now! So there's all sorts of... Um, uh, internecine squabbles within the ruling political and business elite right now. Um, first, were you shocked by your own candidate coming in second? And can you talk about what this means for Guatemala? And if you expect, um, though it is expected that the elite will uh, seek further recounts, annulment, um, uh, that this runoff will happen on August 20th. Yes, of course, we were surprised uh, by the results, but it was uh, logical that this, all this elite and this, um, like corruption regime, uh, were going to give fight against us because uh, this, um, review of the ballots, it was just an excuse, uh, that because they were saying that we manipulated the results in order to commit fraud, but it was impossible for us to do that because we have no economic resources, we didn't have candidates all over the country, and we are relatively a new political party. So it was really difficult for us to compete uh, in this election, and now they, they are saying that we manipulated the results. So it was game-changing for Guatemala uh, political perspective. Uh, it, it is the first time that this happens. So can you talk about what Samia represents and what it would mean if Bernardo Arevalo became president of Guatemala, what he ran on his platform? Well, we are a social democratic party, uh, but we have some priorities uh, that maybe that scares some political elites or economic elites. We have some priorities that will take us uh, well, some time to solve here in Guatemala because uh, we have like uh, this democracy, it isn't in, at its best. So first, the first thing is that we're going to fight against corruption. And that means like a big administrative reform of the state. The second thing is having a market that works for all. So we plan to pass at the first 
antitrust legislation in the history of Guatemala. And that is breaking all these market concentration monopolies and everything and market imperfections. So that is maybe the uh, most scary things for economic elites here in Guatemala. And the third thing is a massive investment in health, in education, social security, and public services. Can you talk about the history of U.S. intervention and how that has led to where we are today? We were just mentioning that Bernardo Arevalo's father, Juan Jose Arevalo, first democratically elected president of Guatemala, went from 45 to 51 in 54, 1954. Um, the U.S. Uh, backing United Fruit overthrew the Guatemalan president, Arbenz, leading to a number of military regimes, the massacres of people, particularly indigenous in the Northwest Highlands of Guatemala, and how that has brought us to today, to Giamate, the current president, who we just heard Bernardo Arevalo talking about the authoritarian government, um, and what you think needs to change, and particularly what should the U.S. be doing, what role the U.S. should be playing? Well, yes, it, it is... Um Important for us because uh, Juan Jose Arevalo uh, was the first democratically elected president here in Guatemala. He won against a regime of military dictatorships. And now Bernardo will win against a regime of corruption dictatorship. I, I think that we have historical justice and Guatemalan people on our side. And we know that we have a social democratic legacy, but we're now looking forward. And we're expecting to have a pacific but, but strong government against corruption and authoritarian ways. Uh, but we know that we have now a polarized society. And it is time uh, to put an end to that. And can you talk about Giamate when it comes to corruption? I mean, when you have what is known as the Pactos Corruptos, the political and business ruling elite in Guatemala, how they banned presidential candidates, um, uh, it seems like they didn't bother to ban uh, Bernardo Arevalo because they never realized he would come in second, leading to this runoff against the former First Lady Sandra Torres. Well, actually, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if uh, Jamate's presidency is the most corrupt president in history, but it sure is the most shameless. They have no legitimacy, no social nor economic results for the people, not even the intention to solve them some minor pro problems. So it's all about two, two things for them, stealing everything they could, and seeking for impunity by selecting and protecting their judges. Um, Semia arises actually from a wave of protest against corruption and all the authoritarian ways. We have been speaking up in Congress against this political uh, prosecution, and which have, we have been victims in the past also, and in favor of freedom of speech and many other human rights. So it's very important for us this election. Can I ask you about the attacks on um, activists, on opposition, uh, also on the press, um, uh, the El, uh, El Periodico, uh, and the 
founder, Jose Rubén Zamora, just sentenced to six years in prison. Um, and what this means, the Guatemalan court in June convicting him of money laundering and um, in what rights groups have condemned as a trumped up case, part of a crackdown on press freedom. Um, Zamora, founder and president of this investigative journalism website. Yes, it is um, because this uh, regime is not only corrupt, but authoritarian. So it's not the first symptom of this uh, authoritarian regime uh, getting to power because we have uh, no freedom of speech. Uh, we, they like buy this, all these congressmen and congresswomen in Congress. So uh, there is no like Republican balances, uh, check and balances here in Guatemala. So it is not only a political saying that we are living uh, in a corruption dictatorship. So we have to put an end to that because we have a really polarized society and it is because of political decisions. Mm. And... Can you talk about how corruption and this authoritarianism leads to greater migration um, and the role of the U.S. when it comes to shoring up the Guatemalan government in exchange for stopping that migration? Well, actually, some of uh, the consequences of this uh, corruption elite uh, leading the country is that they do not have any plan for anything uh, but for stealing uh, public money. So uh, the economic strategy is not working for anyone here in Guatemala. So the consequences are uh, migration, but also the increases of violence, of uh, inequality, of poverty. So every time we measure poverty, it's every time higher. Uh, and that is also political decisions. So uh, that's what that is why they have no legitimacy in power. So they might have the constitutional court, uh, the uh, electoral authority, the Congress, uh, the executive power, but they do not have the most important majority, which is the people's majority. And. There have been protests around the political and government elite uh, trying to head off this runoff, uh, stop um, Arevalo from running. Are you concerned about them initiating street violence? The street violence. Violence in the streets. Yes, well, maybe, because I'm not sure if they are going to... to um, win this one because people are, are not supporting. Uh, actually, I think the review of, of these um, ballots, it was their second plan, their secondary plan. Um, if it have came out for them, everything will be different now, but it was a big failure for them. It was, I, I would say, humiliating for them because in the public eye, with all the media watching and our brave teams fighting uh, for a fair review, we, we ended up having more votes than we were like originally announced. And it wasn't a lot, but a couple of thousand of votes that they take from. So we are now stronger, stronger than ever. So I'm not sure if they're going to uh, be like stopping uh, Bernardo from running for the second round. 
Samuel Perez Alvarez, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Guatemalan Congress member, head of the progressive political party, Semilla. Of course, we'll continue to follow what happens this summer. Next up, it's the 10th anniversary of the coup in Egypt that ousted its first democratically elected president. We'll speak with Shadi Hamid about lessons for the next Arab Spring. Stay with us. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we end today's show looking at this 10th anniversary of the 2013 coup in Egypt. When General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi removed Egypt's first democratically elected president from power, then led a purge of Muslim Brotherhood government leaders and a crackdown on dissent. Lessons for the next Arab Spring is the headline of a new piece by Shadi Hamid, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, author of The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the rise and fall of an ideal. Uh, Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. If you can start off by laying out what we now know about the role of the U.S., particularly of President Obama, in response to the coup. Yeah. Uh, Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. So um, Washington was directly complicit and I think up until relatively recently, and certainly right after the coup 10, 10 years ago, there was a sense that the U.S. was caught off guard, that the Obama administration wanted to do the right thing, but didn't know how, and they didn't really have leverage. And that sort of kind of innocent bystander theory where America acts like, you know, oh, what could we do? We're only the superpower of the world. You know, in recent years, more and more information has come out that suggests that the U.S. played a quite negative role in the months and days leading up to the July 3rd, 2013 military coup. And, you know, in my piece um, and in the book from which it's adapted, The Problem of Democracy, I interviewed around 30 uh, former and, and current senior U.S. officials and was able to get some some spicy information on certain key moments in those final days, and it's not a positive picture. Um, and I, I do argue explicitly that Washington and Obama in particular gave what amounted to a green light to the Egyptian military to proceed with the coup. Um, we could have done quite a bit more to stop it. We could have threatened an immediate aid suspension before the coup happened. And even after the coup happened, there was a chance to declare it a coup and cut assistance. And that's what U.S. law requires in any coup d'etat where the military plays a decisive role. Um, it is a legal obligation to cut aid. Of course, uh, President Obama got away from that or avoided that by not declaring it a coup. 
So there are a number of these different things that, you know, when you when you sort of piece them together, um, it's we can't really say that the U.S. didn't know what was going on. And in fact, some senior officials, in particular, John Kerry, was actually quite enthusiastic about the coup. And um, there was this very memorable phrase where he said that, Abdel Fattah Sisi was, quote unquote, restoring democracy. He said this after two massacres of Muslim Brotherhood supporters. I I mean, your piece is really interesting. And I just want to read from it because it really tells people um, how, you know, the government works. Uh, You write a White House advisor who was there. Walk me through how the conversation unfolded. He said, I came in all hot and bothered, and so did a few others, that there was a clear letter of the law that said, declare the coup, cut off military assistance. Actually, we weren't even focused on the first thing because only somebody who was purposefully obfuscating what uh, would say that it wasn't a coup. So it was like, when do we announce this? That's when I came in, expecting the conversation was going to be about that. And then uh, Obama, for the only time... Uh, greetings, everybody. Again... There, I um, went down for a moment. Yeah, it's the same reason, the whole thing. And uh, Don said he's going to give this bunch a run for their money. So he's going to get up early tomorrow and he's going to make some adjustments. But I thank you for your patience. And so here we go. I'm going to keep on going. To the Egyptian military to proceed with the coup. Um, we could have done quite a bit more to stop it. We could have threatened an immediate aid suspension before the coup happened. And even after the coup happened, there was a chance to declare it a coup and cut assistance. And that's what U.S. law requires in any coup d'etat where the military plays a decisive role. um, It is a legal obligation to cut aid. Of course, uh, President Obama got away from that or avoided that by not declaring it a coup. So there are a number of these different things that, you know, when you when you sort of piece them together, um, it's we can't really say that the U.S. didn't know what was going on. And in fact, some senior officials, in particular, John Kerry, was actually quite enthusiastic about the coup. And um, there was this very memorable phrase where he said that Abdel Fattah Sisi was, quote unquote, restoring democracy. He said this after two massacres of Muslim Brotherhood supporters. I I mean, your piece is really interesting. And I just want to read from it because it really tells people um, how, you know, the government works. Uh, You write a White House advisor who was there. Walk me through how the conversation unfolded. He said, I came in all hot and bothered, and so did a few others, that there was a clear letter of the law that said, declare the coup, cut off military assistance. Actually, we weren't even focused on the first thing because only somebody who was purposefully obfuscating what uh, would say that it wasn't a coup. So it was like, when do we announce this? That's when I came in, expecting the conversation was going to be about that. And then uh, Obama, for the only time that I can recall in the years I worked for him, the only time he came in and said, well, so we're not going to declare this a coup. So what should we do? I was totally taken aback by that. And so were many other people. And so it completely changed the tenor of the conversation. 
I mean, this is fascinating. I don't know if you want to reveal now who it was who was talking to you, <laughs> but explain what this means and why you think Obama took this stance and what now this has meant. I mean, we're talking about thousands of people imprisoned, uh, political prisoners. Yeah, and it, it's really worth underscoring what kind of how this is such a moral stain on the Obama administration's legacy. I do consider the coup to be the day that the Arab Spring ended. After that, there was no hope of getting back. I mean, Egypt is the most populous country in the region. Egypt sets the tone. So this was not just a minor thing. This was decisive. And I hope it will be remembered in that way. And that quote, just hearing you read it back to me, I'm, I still find it remarkable. I mean, I can't share who it was because that's not the sort of thing um, this person would want to be known for. Um, but, uh, but it is really, it is really remarkable. And as for the reasons behind it, I think there's a couple things going on here. Obama also had this very pragmatic side to him where he would say, well, you know, if a coup already happened, let me try to do business with the people who are in power. Let me try to get things done. I don't want too much headache of some big pro-democracy agenda. Let's also keep in mind that Obama, when he assumed the presidency, wanted to distance himself from the Bush administration's so-called freedom agenda. So there was always a kind of discomfort with a very strong emphasis on democracy promotion. But I think there's actually a darker undercurrent where Obama, after some initial enthusiasm for the Arab Spring when it started in 2011, he gets very disillusioned very quickly. And one of the things I discuss at length in the book is the sorts of things that Obama would say privately and even sometimes publicly about Arabs and Muslims. And there was that famous Atlantic profile from 2016 that reported that Obama was known to privately joke, quote unquote, all I need in the Middle East is a few smart autocrats. He also had like an, he also had another joke where he would say he would wonder out loud why people in the Middle East can't be just like the Scandinavians. So there was this sense of like, why can't the Muslims get their act together? Why are they always fighting? And Obama almost felt betrayed because he he supported the Arab Spring, or at least he thought he did in the beginning. And then he then he kind of went and said, well, was I right to support it if it led to all this civil conflict um, and all these clashes between different parties and and ideological orientations? And of course, let's remember, too, that Obama wanted to pivot away from the Middle East. So there was a sense that he was always being dragged back in. And I think at some point there was just a sense of, well, maybe if they were all autocrats, things would be a lot easier. And then just the last thing is we have a we have a democratic dilemma in the Middle East. We like democracy in theory, but we don't like democracy's outcomes in practice. Why? Because it's Islamist parties that tend to win elections or at least do quite well in them when elections are held in the Middle East. And the coup was committed against a Muslim Brotherhood-led government. Here's an Islamist party that believes that Sharia or Islamic law should play a central role in public life. And then we as Americans are just instinct, instinctually uncomfortable with that. We think democracy should lead to good outcomes, but when it leads to Islamist outcomes, we struggle with that. 
Well, Shadi Hamid, I want to thank you for being with us, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We'll link to your new piece in foreign policy, Lessons for the Next Arab Spring. Uh, the book uh, that he's authored, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Gozda, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Jarena Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astor, Dear John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman. This is democracynow.org. All right, we're going to right go. We're going to have a little listen to uh, Professor Richard Wolf, and we're going to have a lot to hear. Here we go. Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's program, we're going to be talking about the latest report on the labor force in the United States and unemployment. We'll look at the student debt problem and what's coming down the pike around that. We're going to be talking about a wonderful poll that talks about how public schools really work in terms of what do the parents and children think about what's going on in our public schools. And finally, we'll be talking about the strike on the West Coast of the United States as the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union closes down Los Angeles, San Francisco, Oakland, Seattle, and all the rest. In the second half of the program, We'll be talking about the peculiarities of capitalism and the capitalist market that introduce the notion of the contradictions that beset this system and that we can learn from. So let's jump right in. Excuse me. The Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, keeps records on the labor force of the United States for the United States government. And it issues a monthly report And I want to talk to you about the latest one, that is the one from May 2023. A lot of people, including the President of the United States and many others, have pointed to the wonderful or the robust or the booming or the good jobs report of the BLS. Well, once again, we are watching cherry-picking of statistics carefully choosing those that shore up your self-image, what you want to believe, and ignoring those that undercut what you want to believe. So let me perform that function for the leaders who are afraid to go there. Here is what the May report of the BLS tells us. Number one. 6.1 million members of our labor force are currently unemployed. They are actively looking for work and unable to find it. In addition, another 3.7 million workers are working part-time but want a full-time job which they cannot find. Three, there's a 
5.5 million people who have stopped looking at least over the last month and therefore are not counted in the unemployed but are listed by the government as people who want a job, have not found one, and have not spent the last month looking for one for whatever reason. Okay, this works out to 15.3 million workers. That's 10% of our labor force in this country. One out of 10 workers is in this situation. No job, that's most of them, or a part-time job when they need and want full-time work. A decent society would have a government agency devoted to working intensely with those 10% of our labor force. 15 plus million people unemployed. If you think that they are parts of a family, say, of three or more other people, we're talking 20% of our population. We have many agencies that work on a much smaller part of our population serving them. Why don't we have a really dedicated force. I don't mean agencies that give you a check because you're unemployed. No, I mean a government program that either helps you out while you're unemployed or more importantly, finds you a job in the private sector with real energy devoted to it or if the private sector can't do it, Gives you, gives you a good public sector job doing one of the thousands of things our society needs. We don't do any of that. We don't develop a child care program, an elderly care program, a program of greening the United States ecologically, all things that could absorb all these people in productive jobs. We don't do it. Remember that the next time you hear about capitalism and its efficiency. It isn't efficient, not if you have 15 plus million people in the condition we had them in May 2023. Well, the Congress of the United States is apparently committed to schooling our students, to not giving them the relief that had been promised, dangled in front of them. Not only are they not going to get relief from their debts, but the COVID Suspension of the need to repay for a little while is set now to expire on the 29th of August. That's a couple of months from now. And only the veto of the president remains as the slim hope to get the 20,000 forgiveness for those who got Pell Grants and the 10,000 for those who earn less than 125,000 a year. No, Mr. Biden and the Republicans did not undo the tax cuts for corporations and the rich of 2017. Undoing them just a little bit would have taken care of paying for this relief to millions and millions of students. No, they didn't do that. And let me make the point as starkly as I know how. Conservatives in the Republican Party, almost all of them, in the Democratic Party, a lot of them. Conservatives yep. don't care about student debt. No. And are prepared to screw the students yep. rather than help them. And so the real question is, 
Will the students fight back? Yeah. Will the students remember who it is who wouldn't relieve their debts the way the same people voted overwhelmingly to relieve the tax burdens on corporations and the rich? That's the real issue that comes out of this. My next update has to do with a poll commissioned by National Public Radio in cooperation with the Ipsos Polling Company, a global polling company of sterling reputation. They did a recent poll on how the public here in the United States views school teachers and schools. And I'm focusing here, as they did, on public schools, which was where most of our young people are educated in the United States. I want to focus your attention here because a very small minority of particularly far-right-wing folks have targeted schools and teachers demanding to ban books, demanding to control what is taught and how it is taught, as if the public schools were in some sort of bad shape, needing right-wing correction. Well, here's what the poll of National Public Radio and Ipsos found. Number one, for K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade, public school teachers are overworked and underpaid. 80% of the public believe that, that public school teachers are overworked and underpaid. 66%, that's two-thirds of parents, of parents worry that if their young children are wanting to become teachers, that that will put them in financial difficulty. In other words, they understand it's so bad, they don't want their own kids going to the teaching profession because it is so underpaid. Yeah. Majority, over 50%, say they trust teachers more than school boards, more than governors, more than teachers' unions, and more than the U.S. Department of Education. There is no loss of faith, of faith in our teachers. That's a right-wing mistake, and I'm being kind here. Yeah. 80%, 80% of public, of the public polls said they believe teachers should teach about slavery, racism, and school segregation. The far, far right wingers crusading against public schools say otherwise, but 80% want the teachers to teach those subjects. And finally, 60% of all the public and over half of the public who identify as Republicans oppose boards of education or lawmakers from banning books in schools. So that's where the majority is on public schools. Don't be fooled by a loud right-wing minority. Mm-hmm. My last update is a kind of shout-out of a particular sort. Mm-hmm. I want to shout-out to a strike that began at the very beginning of June 2023 in, in or on the ports of the West Coast. The International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union, 
the ILWU walked off in many ways, formally, informally, officially, unofficially. The workers stopped working in many of the ports, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, and so on. There's a long history of militancy in this union. A long history of the union showing it was able and willing to fight for what workers need and demand. And in the current atmosphere, of course, the militancy we see at Starbucks, at Amazon, would be also present among the ILWU folks. But it's also true that they've been negotiating with the shipping companies, those who run the ports, for over a year. And those conversations and negotiations have gone nowhere. But unlike others who sometimes slink away, worrying that it's too scary to take further action, that's not the ILWU. So they've closed those ports. They showed the power of working people, which in the end needs to be demonstrated. If you don't have the worker, you don't get the work done, and that's what keeps a society running. It's a lesson to everyone, but also to the workers themselves. You do have the power. You have the ultimate power. And you need to use it, because all the rest of us who work in our jobs need the inspiration, the model, the example, and the support of your solidarity. So I want to tip my hat to the ILWU, as we have mentioned, other workers and other unions. I've come to the end of the first half of today's program, but I want also to stress as we go to our break before shifting to the second half, that Democracy at Work and this program are committed to an ongoing exposure of what is going on that does not get the kind of attention and support and exposure from the mainstream media that it deserves. We are very aware, and we hope you are too, that the mainstream media in our society are overwhelmingly large, private, <clears throat> excuse me, capitalist corporations. And as such, their number one priority, their famous bottom line, is profit. That's what guides them, that's what they focus on, and that governs what they select to cover and how they choose to cover it. We are not a profit-driven enterprise. We are not limited, constrained, or if you want, distorted by a profit motive. And that makes all the difference. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. In this second half, I want to engage with you two important topics. 
They both have to do with how the capitalist economic system works, but I want to highlight ways that it works that are self-contradictory, that cause more problems than they solve, that show that this system, to use the language of the past that still works, is full of devastating contradictions that you may not have noticed or thought about, and that's why I'm going to focus on them here. The first one begins this way. Capitalists as a group, virtually all of them, are continuously trying to do what they call lower labor costs. The basic idea is if they can get production done in the factory, in the office, in the store, if they can get the work done at a lower cost of paying the workers who actually do it, that will be more profit left for them. And that, in, indeed, is how it works. So we know what they do to lower the cost of labor. One of the things we call automation. They replace workers with machines. Nowadays, workers are replaced by computers or by robots or in the coming months and years by something called artificial intelligence. But that's not the only way they lower labor costs. Here's another one. They move production and jobs out of the country to where wages are cheaper. They close the factory in Cincinnati and open another factory in Shanghai. They close the warehouses here and open them in Latin America, and so on. That's another way to save on labor because workers can get paid less in other parts of the world than they get paid here. And then there's a third one. <clears throat> Bring lower paid workers from out of the country into the country, hoping that at least for a while they will accept lower wages than you pay to American workers that are born here and have different expectations. Mm-hmm. So capitalists are always using one or all three of these mechanisms to lower the money they give to workers. So then why is this a contradiction of capitalism? Well, that's very simple. Because the brain of the capitalist is so focused on saving money that he had to give to workers, and he now doesn't have to anymore because he automated or he exported the jobs or he brought in low-wage immigrants. He doesn't realize until later that if you give workers less wages, if you give fewer workers Mm. wages, that's that much less money out there that's available to be spent on your products. And a capitalist isn't going to make money unless he sells all that is being produced. If you cut what you give to your workers... You are cutting the market for what you sell. What helps you in one way bites you in the rear end on the other way. That's a contradiction of the system. So capitalists have frightened themselves by their own behavior. They don't want to face that their system is contradictory. They don't want to make an awareness in their brain that what they're working hard to do by reducing outlays to their workers comes back to them as insufficient sales of their (laughs) products. So here's what they've done. 
and I want to show you the effects of capitalism's contradictions. Number one, <clears throat> a whole new industry was developed under capitalism. Never existed before. We call that industry advertising. Companies that produce something, a good or a service, hire an advertising enterprise to figure out how to get people to buy more stuff because they're suffering. They can't sell. And they don't want to admit to themselves, we can't sell all of our stuff because we've cut the wages we pay, we've laid off the workers we used to hire, and so on. So a whole new industry is devoted to getting us to shell out money we might otherwise not have, to play on our psychological concerns, our self-doubt, our worries about the future, our concern for our children, and tell us you can solve that problem or that one or that one by buying more. Feeling low? Go to the mall. Shop till you drop. <laughs> wow. This begins to teach people that your personal problems, your problems of relating to a mother, a father, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a spouse, and so on, can be solved by buying things. A lot of people spend a whole lifetime before they figure out that that's not good advice. But that's the result of the contradictions of capitalism. Here's another one. If you don't pay workers enough, what you better do is give them a loan so they can buy what you're producing because you don't pay them enough wages to afford it. That's the craziness of our system. The corporations cut the wages they give workers, lay off workers, move jobs overseas, discover then that the workers don't have enough money to afford what they sell, so they develop a program to fill the workers' wallets with credit cards so they can buy more than they can afford and go into debt, which makes them worried and anxious. And you know what? Makes them buy more drugs to cope with a life of anxiety. And here's another result of this craziness. It used to be when we have economic downturns, because capitalism is a very unstable system with downturns every few years. It used to be that the downturn was contained because you laid off a lot of workers and they couldn't buy stuff, and that was bad. But now it's worse, because when you lay off a lot of workers, it's not only that they can't buy things the way they used to, but they can't service their debts, which have accumulated. They can't meet their mortgage payments. They can't meet their car payments. They can't meet their student loan payment. And that then spreads the damage of a downturn all over the economy. Lots of bad things about our society come from the contradiction of capitalism, that it's always depressing the wage monies handed out and then having to cope with the result of insufficient sales. And now here's the second example. In the textbooks that I have had to teach all my life in economics, here's how it goes. Markets, we are told, are wonderful. You know why? When there's something scarce, not enough of it, the people who want it bid up the price. And then we are told, see, when the price goes up, that's an incentive for other producers to make more of this object because they want to get in on the high price 
And by producing more, they drive the price down. And so the market is a self-healing mechanism. We're supposed to marvel. You see, if the price goes up, it sets in motion the increasing output that drives the price back down. (laughs) This lovely story repeated to one generation of economic students gullible enough to believe it after another. It's all wrong. And here's the simple reason why. Capitalists have long ago learned this lesson. And here's the lesson they've learned. If you can restrict the supply, you can drive up the price. Yeah, that might create an incentive for others to come in, which you don't want. You would like to keep the others out. You would like to prevent them. Why? Because then the price stays up. And you make even more money than if the price didn't go up and if the price didn't stay up. So the system has developed ways to keep prices above what they need to be to pay for the cost of producing them and to give the capitalist a reasonable profit. Capitalists don't believe in reasonable profit. They believe in maximum profit. So they've developed ways to keep the supply too short so that the price stays real high. And you really know that. But I'm going to give them to you again. One of them is called brand loyalty. Here's what you do. You do a mammoth amount of advertising whose real purpose is to suggest to the public that the particular commodity you produce is different from what all the others who produce the same commodity are doing. That way people will say, oh, I've got to get that brand because it's better than another one. Let me give you some examples that you already know. Pepsi and Coca-Cola. That's sugar water with a bit of a flavor in it. A thousand other companies produce cans and bottles full of sugar water with a little flavor in it. They really are all the same. Pretty much. The difference is minuscule and for most of us undetectable. But Pepsi and Coca-Cola have their picture with the happy folks at the beach drinking that stuff in front of us 24-7. Teaching many people that there's something better than, magical, and so we will pay more for Pepsi and Coca-Cola than we will for all the other brands making pretty much the same thing. That's crazy. But we live in a crazy society made crazy by the contradictions of capitalism. Here's another example. This one comes from the milk farmers of America. They figured this game out too. The milk farmers decided long ago to stop opposing government rules about how clean the cows have to be and how clean the stable has to be where the milk is taken from the cows. They supported the government mandating expensive machinery to keep that all clean. Why did they do that? Because the big milk producers, the ones whose names you know, they could afford the machinery, but all the little milk farmers couldn't. It's too expensive. 
So the big farmers supported the government, made for the cleanliness machines. All the little ones went out of business. The quantity of milk was reduced. The price went up, and the big guys made a killing in a profit. Wow. And where does that come from? Is that something to do with milk? No, it is something to do with wanting to keep the price high by restricting the supply. Then we have another example from recent history. A capitalist says, I can't produce as much as I did before. Why? Because, here we go, supply chain disruptions. I need these in inputs to my production process. They come from Africa, they come from China, they come from wherever. And there's been difficulty on enough ships. Uh, one of them got stuck in the Suez Canal. There's this problem, there's that. And you know, when there's not enough of my inputs, I have to pay more to get, and so I have to charge more. In other words, because one capitalist plays this game of driving up the price by restricting supply, everybody else has that excuse to do it too. <laughs> You're being hustled here. Yes. Every large company has a supply department, a supply manager, a purchasing manager. It's their job to make sure that they get around any supply chain disruptions. To suddenly hear about supply chain disruptions should make you realize you're being hustled too. And then there's the most famous one from history. When a producer says, wait a minute, my only risk if I cut the supply and I drive up the price, is that others come in, other producers that I compete with, come in and fill in the reduced supply. So let me make a deal with that. There are words for that, cartel. One company gets together with all the others and says, look, let's all agree to restrict supply and we'll all enjoy the higher price. You all know that one too. It's called OPEC. That's how the price of oil and gas go up and down like a yo-yo. Capitalism's contradictions are at play shaping a great deal of our lives. And that's why so many people are questioning and becoming critics of a system that works like that. I guess that means it's over. Okay. It is 12-12, so I'm going to make an alternative choice because of the time, and it will be, um, let's see, where do I go get that again? Um, mm, where was that? Um. Oh here. Let's see. Oh yes, it was up there. Okay, just a second. I know where. Ah. Uh. Oh my God. I'm sorry, this is, should have written it down. I, 
We don't have the time to do what I wanted to do. This is why. Mm, That's ten minutes altogether, right? Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Let's just see what this good word is. Oh. Okay. All right. We just got an opening here. So I'm going to play what I was going to play in the first place. Okay, this is from Robert Reich. Or maybe I'll do a Kenny Bell. Yeah, that's what I want to do. Okay. Well, that's okay. We'll play this one. This is 19 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a good education about oligarchs and... He's kind of cute because he can do cartoon things on his paper there as fast as they can keep up. He's amazing. So Robert Reich is going to just give you a little education about these characters. So let's just get started. All right, here we go. Past $200 billion. So we take the median wait, wait, wait. Working class program, go to the people at a grassroots level with things that really matter. Elon Musk's wealth has surpassed two hundred billion dollars. And we take the median US worker. What it says there is two hundred and fifty billion is what he's got. Oh my god. Okay. Oh four million years to make that much. Wealth inequality is eating this country alive. We're now in America's second Gilded Age, just like the late 19th century, when a handful of robber barons monopolized the economy, kept wages down, and bribed lawmakers. While today's robber barons take joyrides into space, the distance between their gargantuan wealth and the financial struggles of working Americans has never been clearer. During the first 19 months of the pandemic, U.S. billionaires added $2.1 trillion dollars to their collective wealth, and the rich have enough political power to cut their taxes to almost nothing, sometimes literally nothing. In fact, Jeff Bezos paid no federal income taxes in 2007 or in 2011. By 2018, the 400 richest Americans paid a lower overall tax rate than almost anyone else. But we can't solve this problem unless we know how it was created in the first place. Let's start with the basics. Wealth inequality in America is far larger than income inequality. Income is what you earn each week or month or year. Wealth refers to the sum total of your assets, your car, your home, art, anything else you own that's valuable. Valuable not only because there's a market for it, a price other people are willing to pay to buy it, but because wealth itself grows. As the population expands and the nation becomes more productive, the overall economy continues to expand. This expansion pushes up the values of stocks, bonds, rental property, homes, and most other assets. Of course, recessions and occasional depressions can reduce the value of such assets, but over the long haul, 
the value of almost all wealth increases. Next, personal wealth comes from two sources. The first source is the income you earn but don't spend. That's your savings. When you invest those savings in stocks, bonds, or real property, or other assets, you create your personal wealth, which, as we've seen, grows over time. The second source of personal wealth is whatever is handed down to you from your parents, grandparents, and maybe even generations before them. In other words, what you inherit. The wealth gap between the richest Americans and everyone else is staggering. In the 1970s, the wealthiest 1% owned about 20% of the nation's total household wealth. Now, they own over 35%. Much of their gains over the last 40 years have come from a dramatic increase in the value of shares of stock. For example, if someone invested $1,000 in 1978 in a broad index of stocks, say the S&P 500, they would have $31,823 today adjusted for inflation. Who's benefited from this surge? The richest 1% who now own half the entire stock market. But the typical workers' wages have barely grown. Most Americans haven't earned nearly enough to save anything. Before the pandemic, when the economy appeared to be doing well, almost 80% were living paycheck to paycheck. So as income inequality has widened, the amount that the few high-earning households save, their wealth, has continued to grow. Their growing wealth has allowed them to pass on more and more wealth to their heirs. Take, for example, the Waltons, the family behind the Walmart empire, which has seven heirs on the Forbes billionaires list. Their children and other rich millennials will soon consolidate even more of the nation's wealth. America is now on the cusp of the largest intergenerational transfer of wealth in history. As wealthy boomers pass on, Somewhere between 30 to 70 trillion dollars will go to their children over the next three decades. These children will be able to live off this wealth and then leave the bulk of it, which will continue growing, to their own children, tax-free. After a few generations of this, almost all of America's wealth could be in the hands of a few thousand families. Concentrated wealth is already endangering our democracy. Wealth doesn't just beget more wealth, it begets more power. Dynastic wealth concentrates power in the hands of fewer and fewer people who can choose what nonprofits and charities to support and which politicians to bankroll. This gives an unelected elite enormous sway over both our economy and our democracy. We might come to resemble the kind of dynasties common to European aristocracies in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Dynastic wealth makes a mockery of the idea that America is a meritocracy where anyone can make it on the basis of their own efforts. 
It also runs counter to the basic economic ideas that people earn what they're worth in the markets and that economic gains should go to those who deserve them. Finally, wealth concentration magnifies gender and race disparities because women and people of color tend to make less, save less, and inherit less. The typical single woman owns only 32 cents of wealth for every dollar of wealth owned by a man. The pandemic likely increased this gap. The racial wealth gap is even starker. The typical black household owns just 13 cents of wealth for every dollar of wealth owned by the typical white household. The pandemic likely increased this gap too. In all these ways, dynastic wealth creates a self-perpetuating aristocracy that runs counter to the ideals we claim to live by. faced anything comparable to the concentration of wealth we face today was at the turn of the 20th century. That was when President Teddy Roosevelt warned that, quote, a small class of enormously wealthy and economically powerful men whose chief object is to hold and increase their power, unquote, could destroy American democracy. Roosevelt's answer then was to tax wealth. Congress enacted two kinds of wealth taxes. The first, in 1916, was the estate tax, a tax on the wealth someone has accumulated during their lifetime paid by the heirs who inherit that wealth. The second tax on wealth, enacted in 1922, was a capital gains tax, a tax on the increased value of those assets paid when those assets are sold. But both of these wealth taxes have shrunk since then or become so riddled with loopholes that they haven't been able to prevent a new American aristocracy from emerging. The Trump Republican tax cut enabled individuals to exclude $11.18 million from their estate taxes. That means one couple can pass on more than $22 million to their kids tax-free. Not to mention the very rich often find ways around this tax entirely. As Trump's former White House National Economic Council Director Garrett Cohn put it, only morons pay the estate tax. What about capital gains on the soaring values of wealthy people's stocks, bonds, mansions, and works of art? Here, the biggest loophole is something called the stepped-up basis if the wealthy hold on to their assets until they die, Uh-oh. their heirs inherit them without paying any capital gains taxes whatsoever. All the increased value of those assets is simply erased for tax purposes. This loophole saves heirs an estimated $40 billion a year. This means that huge accumulations of wealth in the hands of a relatively few households can be passed from generation to generation untaxed, growing along the way, generating comfortable incomes for rich descendants who will never have to work a day of their lives. That's the dynastic class we're creating right now. Why have these two wealth taxes eroded? Because 
as America's wealth has concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, the wealthy have more capacity to donate to political campaigns and public relations. And they've used that political power to reduce their taxes. It's exactly what Teddy Roosevelt feared so many years ago. So what do we do? Follow the wisdom of Teddy Roosevelt and tax great accumulations of wealth. The ultra-rich have benefited from the American system, from laws that protect their wealth and our economy that enable them to build their fortunes in the first place. They should pay their fair share. The majority of Americans, both Democrats and Republicans, believe the ultra-rich should pay higher taxes. There are many ways to make them do so, closing the stepped-up basis loophole, raising the capital gains tax, and fully funding the Internal Revenue Service so it can properly audit the wealthiest taxpayers. For starters, beyond those fixes, we need a new wealth tax. A tax of just 2% a year on wealth in excess of a million dollars. It's hardly a drop in the bucket for scented billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, but it would generate plenty of revenue to invest in healthcare and education so that millions of Americans have a fair shot at making it. One of the most important things you as an individual can do is take the time to understand the realities of wealth inequality in America and how the system has become rigged in favor of those at the top and demand your political representatives take action to unrig it. Wealth inequality is worse than it has been in a century. We have to stop this vicious cycle and demand an economy that works for the many, not one that concentrates more and more wealth in the hands of a privileged few. Hey, happy Friday, you bastards. It's $5 freaking Friday, you bastards. $5. So what does that mean for you? Well, that means that you can now start being a sustaining donor for the low, low bargain basement price of $5. And today only, if you start a sustaining... Okay, so... I'm going to pass the talking stick to Rainbird, our commander-in-chief of the moment. And uh, Master Quetzalcoatl is on this talking stick with all his assistants and all the, all the hosts of heaven and the little people. Here it comes, Rainbird. Oh, I got it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so what an evening and a good portal day and today's a new day in, here, here in this part of the world <laughs> and in your part too. So, Absolutely. Yeah. A new day, a new, new something going on, so <laughs> we'll check it out tomorrow afternoon and thank you for everything tonight. And we thank Don, too, and we're going to send him a whole bunch of good vibrations and all kinds of elvish help and everything else in the world so that he can get around this naughty bunch that are messing with us. Yeah, really. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. It's good. Okay. I pass the talking stick, and Rama, what you got? Yeah, what you got, Rama? This is... uh... 
Aurora Ray, the Galactic Federation's Mission of Ascension, Unlocking the Divine Crystalline Blueprint. All right, let's do that. Here we go. Energy update from the Galactic Federation. Galactic Federation is a collective of intelligent civilizations from other planets in our galaxy that have come here to help us transition into a higher frequency of consciousness. They exist at a frequency that vibrates at a much higher rate than we do. One of the reasons they have come here is to help us raise our vibration so that we can ascend to the next level of consciousness. Due to your conscious participation, new templates and accelerated frequency patterns can now be put into motion to align your world with more of her divine crystalline blueprint for these times. The world has been transformed in ways that are both miraculous and miraculous. This is all due to your conscious participation. You have chosen to continue the process of co-creating with us through your own efforts and through the efforts of those who are part of this collective effort. Your contribution has been greatly appreciated by our Divine Mother and by us, the Galactic Federation. It is because of your participation that we have been able to take care of the changes that needed to be made on the inner planes so that we could manifest these changes on the outer planes as well. This was not an easy feat for you or for us, but it was one that needed to be done in order for humanity and Mother Earth to move forward into their new golden age. We thank each of you for your willingness to step up into your own power so that you can make these changes happen within yourselves first before being able to do so within this world around you. This is what it means when we say that you are co-creating with us because this is exactly what was needed in order for us to fully manifest what is happening now on Earth and beyond into physical form. If you are ready to take on this new role in your own life and in the life of humanity and your beloved planet, then we invite you to join us in this consciousness shift. Each of you has a unique calling that is part of our divine purpose here on Earth. As you awaken to your own personal inner blueprint and become more aware of who you are in your spiritual essence, there will be an expansion within yourself that will allow you to create new realities while simultaneously returning to your original blueprint. We come to you to offer our support and encouragement as you continue to raise your own frequencies through your conscious participation in the divine crystalline blueprint that is now being anchored into place. We recognize that there is a lot of chaos in the world today. The old is being brought to an end, and many are feeling anxious about what the future holds for them. It is time for each of you to take responsibility for your own role in co-creating the world you want to live in. And this starts with yourselves. The key to success lies within each and every one of you. You have been given conscious permission to create your own reality by coming together as a collective consciousness, sharing your dreams and visions with one another. You have been given free will to choose how you want to experience life on Earth at this time. The choice is yours. Do you choose to remain asleep or do you choose to awaken from the dream of separation? We are all excited that you have chosen to participate in this grand experiment called life. 
You have agreed to be a part of this magnificent journey on Earth, and we are very grateful for your participation. Many of us who have been on this planet for millennia have been watching with great anticipation for you to join us here in these times. We know that many of you have put off coming here until such time that you felt ready or had completed certain things in your life back home. But now, it is time for all of you who have been waiting patiently for this moment to come together as one heart, one voice, and one consciousness with the intention of co-creating your new reality together. It is time for you to start working together as one soul family in order to manifest your new world into physical form. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Okay, everyone, Ramas. I'm just saying so long, so farewell. Off either saying good night. We fleet, we float, we fleet, we float. We fly. So here's the music for tonight. Mm-hmm.
afternoon if it's for you tomorrow. We understand that this third dimensional time is moving into galactic time, which is no time. So let's remember who we are. And that statement is becoming um, as Bernie says, <laughs> huge and we said a couple of things that we are we are galactic beings all of us nobody's ever been from earth it's just the programming that has led us to believe that we're little underlings and slaves and it really doesn't matter who at the hands of the fallen angels who don't care about who you are either and they have no interest in learning about who they are because they're possessed with only one thing money and what it can do to give them power and we come we keep your enemies closer than your friends so until we meet again in your dream time call it in all the beings of light and send those naughty characters that are about to learn something about love more love <laughs> namaste peace down and aloha and we'll see you oh in about 12 hours or less <laughs> aloha 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 namaste